Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. The Carl Nelson Show. Good morning, Wake Up Squad, and thanks for kickstarting your week with us again. Later, one of the architects of the Million Man March will join us. Today is the 25th, 28th anniversary of the march, and Dr. Milana Kringle explained what it took to pull off the most uh, uh, historic and successful gathering of black men in the nation's capital. Dr. Kringle wrote the manifesto for the march and also was the final speaker before Minister Farrakhan closed out the session. Before we hear from uh, Dr. Kringle, though, a reparations advocate, Cam Howard will join us, but to get us started, Benson Harbor community activist, the Reverend Edward Pinckney is here. Good morning, Reverend Pinckney. Good morning. Good morning, Carl Nelson. How are you doing today? I, I'm excited to be here today to talk about this, the 28th uh, anniversary of the Million Man March. I, I, I'm excited. I, 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 I tell you, Carl. And you know what? And it should be talked about. Uh, people don't talk about stuff like this. But it, it was bigger than people anticipated and um, and the response. You know, during that period of time, the Republican Party, they were in charge during that period of time. And I think what it did more than anything else sent a strong message to them that black folks can get together and do things. And I, I, thought, I thought that was huge, and even today is huge, to get us together to do something positive, on that level is tremendous. I, I, I tell you, I, I'm excited, Carl. So let's 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 get to it. Yeah, uh, let's get to it. So so why do you think it, it was so successful? Because you know people said we can't have two of us in the room without somebody fighting, <laughs> cussing, or something like that, and that never happened. You had all those brothers on the march, and nothing happened. Nothing negative happened, I should say. Oh, a- absolutely. The march was really successful because it was it was peaceful. It was singing. It was people actually coming together to actually to accomplish something that was even more. See, to me, it, it sent a strong message. It sent a strong message to the nation that black folks can do things and get, they can do it peacefully. You know, we don't. We there, there was nobody getting shot. There was nobody getting robbed. There was nobody. Uh, everybody was there mostly to hear a message, and that's what they got. They got a message about unity. Unity, unity, and that message is good for the day. We need another Million Man March as soon as possible because I tell you uh, what Mr. Louis Farrakhan did in his group, uh, it, it took a lot of work. It, 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 was, it, was, uh, it was not an overnight uh, thing. You know, it took planning and, and, and making sure that we got what we want out of it. And I think it's in the, the best thing that I can say. It sent a strong message, not only to Washington, but to everybody around the country, that black folks can do something, black people can come together, black people can come together in a peaceful manner and get things done. And I think uh, uh, even today, I'm excited. 
well, you know, you know, it was interesting to me, though, uh, Reverend Pinkney, that many of the people, many of the young men who, who went to the march were not members of the nation. They, yeah. You know, he made the call for everybody and they responded. Not necessarily. You don't have to be a member of a mosque. You don't have to be any faith. Everybody showed up. A- absolutely. And, and that was a good thing. And even today, you don't have to be a member of the nation for us to come together. You see, and and uh, uh, and people may really may not have known this. This part, I, I thought this part would, to me was the best part. It, it sets up a political message. You see, and and when I'm saying about a, a political message, you know, uh, people that they never thought that could come together came together, and then and I said this earlier about the Republicans being in charge. You see. And it shows that, hey, we could be a force to be reckoned with. If you can get a hundred, a million men to come together in Washington, D.C., and they came out from all over. They drove, they, they, they flew, everything you could think of, they did to make sure that they was there. And I think the message was loud and clear that we are together and we're going to make this thing happen. And I thought that was, that was huge. And, you know, one of the critiques I heard about the march was, well, actually two. One, that there was a million of us gathered on, on the mall, but because we don't own any transportation system, airlines, or trail lines, or anything like that, that money went out and should have stayed in the black community. That was one. And, and two, the, the other critique I heard was, was that after the march, we could something could have been done. Something, even though he gave us some marching orders, you could sign up people to vote. You could have just say everybody do this or do that. They wanted more direct marching orders. Those were two critiques that I that I heard from people, and those are from folks who didn't go to the march. By the way, I want mm-hmm. to get your thoughts on both of those. Absolutely, my my thought on you know the money could have stayed in the community. Sometimes you have to let the money go out of the community in order to accomplish something. And I think in this case, we'll, we, you know, we allowed the money to go out the community, but you didn't see we accomplished so much. I think the end justifies the means. And I think that we, you know, we, what we did, we established something that I thought was so huge that even today it sends a man. People still talking about the Million Man March today. They're talking about it. They're talking about things that they that that went on there. They're talking about things, but the the, the to me. We there should have been orders on how we could start moving together and moving in 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 the in the right uh, uh, direction in which you know uh, even voting and stuff like that because that time voting was big you know people could you know voter registration you know and uniting behind one common goal I think that would have been been even even more important and here's something that I, I think we we missed on that you had uh, one million. Uh, men's there. And the thing was that, you know, we should have been talking about our children, too, because you always got to build a foundation for the future, you know. And I think, you know, we missed that. We missed that on that because you get a hundred, uh, uh, a million black men together, you're going to make sure that, uh, that uh, uh, we, we have a, a message that we need to take back to the community. And I, I don't think the, uh, the message was really clear. I think the message was um, unity, but we should have had a message, start taking care of our children. 
Right. I think that message might have been there. It might have been implied or direct. I'll tell you what, this is what we'll do. Eight after the top there. Folks, if you were at the, the Million Man March or, or if you heard about it, want to get your thoughts, you can speak to Reverend Pinckney at 800 450 And Rev, you, you mentioned the marching orders because what I heard that uh, after the march, brothers went back home to their cities and their communities and, and they, the, the, the uh, I guess the divorce rate dropped and the adoption rates went up and people were more more inclined to work with each other. Did you hear that as well out where in Michigan well, where you are? Not only did I hear it, but I, I felt it, you know, and uh, it, it, it was to me, we was there. It was the spirit, you know, the spirit that was developed there. You see, we developed a spirit of caring, loving spirit, and that was a certain group of people. You see, and uh, and I, and I think that was important too. We, we you know we developed this spirit, and the spirit carried on. You see, and uh, even today, like I like I said, you know, I still hear people talking about uh, the Million Man March. I still hear it, you know, and but those are people that that's conscious. Of our, of, of our future, we got to deliver this message to our younger folks. We need another Million Man March as soon as possible. And let's deliver this message to our children because it uh, looks like our children have taken a route that uh, is very destructive at this time because we have not uh, gave them the proper leadership to move to a different level. Yeah, and we see that being played out. What's the music they're singing or dancing to these days, or what's what they term as entertainment? You know what we like, man. This is debauchery. This is not entertainment. And and people wonder why when people come to this country, black, white, purple, or green, why they think about us? Because some of the things they see about us is what we have a lot of disdain for what we see our young people are getting involved. So I, I agree with you that we need another another gathering, especially of our young people. But how are we going to reach these young people? Do you think if Minister Farrakhan called for another march, that some of these young people who, who were, you know, uh, involved in that destructive behavior, do you think they would show up? I, I, I believe they would. I, I think that that we're looking for leadership. We're looking for people to step up to the plate. We're looking for people to go beyond the call of duty. We're looking for people that, that would take that, that, that next step uh, to, to a higher platform. And I, and I think that they will show up, you know, but here's what, what you got to do. You got to bring some of them, them rappers in, you know, some, they, some of the messages, uh, what's the AK 47 shooting kill, you know, they, they, they message to me, it's not a message, you know, and but the kids today look at it as a message, you see. And uh, uh, matter of fact, just on Saturday, I was uh, we had an event, and I, you know, we had a, a I invited a couple of rappers, and one thing I told them, I said, I said, I want you to, well, you know, I'm gonna let you rap, and, you know, we had more, maybe over maybe 150, 200 people there, and uh, he, and I said, but no, you know. I, you know, I want you to blot out all, you know, all the mothers, bees, and all this kind of stuff in your rap. He said, "Well, that's my rap. That's how I rap." I said, "Well, I said, well, we can't. I can't let you go on. Uh, you know, because I'm, I'm not going to tell you that it's okay for you, to, you know, to call the women the, the b word, to call the, uh, 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 call them uh, the, the 
holes and stuff like that. I'm not going to do that. Or uh, I'm going to take an AK-47 and, and do this to you. So I said, I, say, I, I can't do it. I said, I love you, but I, I can't do it. And then he, he came up with a song. That he he got that he had about three he had three songs that didn't have any cursing words in it. So my message to him was clear, you see. And I told him, you know, that's something I'm not going to tolerate. You know, not in my building. You know, and <laughs> it, and the message was clear, and and it showed. And young folks showed up. Young folks showed up because he was there. His group was there. You see, and I think that's when we do this. Uh, uh, million man, well, well, let me jump in and ask you this before you move on to that. Were they disappointed because he wasn't cussing then? Because they used—that's what they used to. Were they disappointed when in his performance when there was no cuss words, no calling out women out of their names? McDonald's is not new to chicken, so maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy, juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. I, I, you know, I'm going to say the answer is no. I, I think what they got out of that was that he was there. You see, uh, he is one of the, one of the, the, I guess, the well-known rappers here in, in Benton Harbor. But every every word come out of his mouth is the B or the or or the hole or, or I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm going to shoot something up if you get in my way. You know, all that kind of you know to me. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not advocating for none of that stuff. Only thing I'm advocating for is to make sure that they understand that, you know, you have an obligation too, you see. And you got you have an obligation. One, we talked about taking care of children. That, that was the number one thing because some of the, this, I think this one of the guys in the group had about eight kids. He was only Rev, hold, hold that thought right there because I, I want to hear the rest of this story, but we got to take a short break here. All we got to right. take our All first right. check of the traffic and whether or not different cities at 14 minutes after the top of the hour. We're celebrating the anniversary of the Million Man March 28 years ago. It happened today. If you went, tell us where you were at this particular time 28 years ago in Washington, D.C. Your phone calls in four minutes with Reverend Pinckney right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 W. OL, where information is power. Good morning again, family. It's 21 minutes after the top of the hour with Reverend Ed Pinckney. He's, he's out of Benton Harbor, Michigan. He's an activist preacher there. We're discussing the Million Man March. Today is the 20th anniversary of the march. We'd like to hear from you. If you went to the march, what were you doing? Because like at this time, it's six uh, after six in the morning. People were still were already at the march. They're already picking out their good spots on the march. But let's go back to Reverend Pinckney. So, Rev, I'll let you finish your thought what you were telling us about before we left for the traffic and weather update. Absolutely. You know, on, on Saturday, it was more like the, it was, you know, we had the spirit of God in there. And this, these kids was, you know, we gave them an opportunity to say what we can do to help them, you see. And uh, 
and you know if it, it, it got you know a heat at a certain time, they they was telling telling the the group all the things that the city don't do, all the things that you know adults don't do, and I, I and I accept that because you know this is why we having this. You know it's time that that we talk, and that's why I brought the rapper in, someone who they could relate to. You see, and um, and I, I tell you on that day. Uh, the spirit of God was there, and we wrote down stuff. And I, we left there saying one thing. They asked us, they just, they, they like to put a basketball court on my property. And you know what I told them? I said I'm going to do everything in my power to put that basketball up court up and have it ready by by next year, June first. I told them that I was going to try. I'm going to do everything in my power to try to get donations and everything to help put that basketball court up. And when they left there, I'm going to tell you this, because we had a lot of trouble with shooting, drive-by shooting, uh, drugs, and all, all this kind of stuff, And then, which is every, you know, most community, but I'm not making an excuse for it. But what I'm trying to say is that I'm going to go after it. I'm going to attack. I'm going to uh, uh, tackle it. I'm going to attack it, and I think that's where the Million Man March is so important. If we had a, a Million Man March, let's say uh, you can't do it this year, but next year, I, I would believe that you know these young guys would come and and be there and stand tall. So that's where I'm at now. That's where I want to be. That's where I want to make sure I'm having a conversation with these young people, and I want to know how I can help you. How? You tell me. You know, I really don't know. But if you tell me, then I got to, I, I, I got to write that down. And then I got to make sure I do what you asked me to do on this note. But I am. I'm going to fix them up a really a nice basketball court. And I, I tell you this, I'm going to try to change the way they think also. If I, you know, but they got to want to do it. If they want to do it, it can be done. Well, let me jump in and ask you this before I take a coffee at 24 after the top there. Many times you speak to young people and they say that they blame us, the adults. They said we failed them. Mm -hmm. What is it? Did, did they did they ever uh, tell you how we failed them? What did we what did we did do that we supposed to have done as, as adults? Well, one, one of the things I think was the most important thing, they said we don't listen to them. They said, you know, we, we one of the guys said, well, I'm, we are hollering and we are screaming. We're trying to get your attention. And you're you're not listening to us. You're not uh, uh, giving us this opportunity to to grow. You know, and you know how. And that's why I had this uh, 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 question and answer section. You tell me how I can help you. And that the biggest thing that they were telling me that we don't listen to them. We don't. You know, if, if we say we're gonna do something, most time we don't do it. You see. And. Uh, uh, and, well, and, and, well, Rev, what is it they want, though? What is it? That, you know, they say we don't listen. Okay, you listened. Did they tell you what they want? Well, that, that, I guess more than anything else, what I got out of the thing is that they want to be part of what's going on. They want to be part of the uh, 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 how they can help and build. Uh, and, and, you know, that's really what I got out of that, uh, you know, that they want to be part of what you know, what we're building and what we're trying to do. They want to have a voice. They want to, you know, and things like that. Those are, are some of the takeaways that I got from what they want and how and how we can deal with it, how we can make this transition 
uh, uh, better. But like I told them, you got to put the work in. You know, things are not just going to come. You got to put the work in. You got to say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to change my, my community. I'm going to I'm going to start policing my community. You know, and, and uh, uh, I said, those are things that we need to talk about, you see. And, uh, and their eyesight was, you know, that they're willing to do it. So my job is to hold them to it. And, and one of the things that I, I thought that was really, really important, I, we got a chance to talk to them, and they see us. You see, they see me out there all the time. They see I'm 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 out there I'm out there every day, every single day. I'm I'm out uh, uh, dealing with these people. That's why we had such a large turnout because it was me and also brought, had food for them. I had everything they they wanted that that attracted them there. I had the rapper and I had what they needed. And and I'm trying to talk their language to them so they can under so I can understand them better. You see. Because right now, you know, like I said, I don't really know. You know, like I said, you have to tell me. And then, like, you ask me, well, what do they want? You know, I think they just want to be recognized. That's my, my belief. You oh, know, and, okay. and uh, I'm willing to go beyond the call of duty to make it happen. That's what I, I, I believe. I believe that we, we have to make sure that we, we deal with them, you see, and and just like your child, I, I you know my children. I make sure that they they have what they need in order to be successful. I think we should make sure that they have what they need to be successful. And like like even a uh, uh, a program here, we got a pilot program going for the for for the high school students. Well, they they can make they make all you need is a high school diploma, and you you can become uh, work at the water plant and make fifty thousand dollars starting. You know, and they see me out there, so they listen to me. That's how it is. All right. As I mentioned, I got some folks want to talk to you at 28 after the top there. Let's go to Baltimore on line two. Glaude's waiting for us. Good morning, Glaude. You're on with Reverend Pinkney. Yeah, good morning, Reverend Pinkney. Good morning. Uh, yeah, good morning, sir. This is Glaude uh, Levi McGuire from Baltimore. I've been a follower of Minister Lewis Farquhar from day one when they was in Baltimore having some issues. And it's, and it's still part of it because a lot of my friends as well. I didn't attend the Million Man March, but my heart and spirit was there because I was operating a business on that particular day. But the pledges, I've been trying to get brothers to drop some pledges off and uh, so we can pass them out because you have a lot of people like myself that got that good spirit and, and we can touch you know, the young boys by passing out the uh, the pledges that Minister Louis Farrakhan had at the Million Man March. And believe it or not, I ran some copies off and I put them out front, out front of my house on stand, and they mm-hmm. started taking them, you know? Yeah. So if, if we do that more and more and more and touch people like myself so we can get the word out there, you'd be surprised these young people can straighten up and do the right thing because they, we know that they got a lot of obstacles in front of them, man. There's so much happening, you know, and everything. But we can change it, you know, by, by planting the seed and trying to teach them, you know, the right thing. And they're going to be all right. But we need to get the word out there. But those pledges, those pledges are going to make a big difference. Okay, so I wish you'd give us some thought and have different cities so people can step up to the plate and do the right thing for our young, for our young people. All right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know what? I agree with you 100%. We, you know, we got to go to them. 
You know, we we got to go go into the go into the community, walk the community, let them see you uh, in the community. And I I know one time there, you know, we had over five hundred kids. What they would do uh, with the homeowners, they'll lean on their fence and break them. And I went to them. You know, I said, Hey, look, you know, you wouldn't want nobody to do your parents like this. You know, so let's let's keep it moving. Let's go somewhere where you can where these senior citizens can be safe. And uh, uh, and they did, you know. And when I talked to them, they listened because they know I'm out there every single day. That's not today. And 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 the minister, uh, you know, I love the minister. I love him because he 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 came to my house. He used to come to my house, and and we'll sit down and talk for hours and hours and hours. Oh, and uh, I learned a lot from him. And he uh, and, and we would just talk. You know, he'll get here maybe two o'clock and don't leave during the summer till nine o'clock at night. You know, and and we're just talking. We we're just talking. And he, you know, and uh, I love his spirit. He got a he he really got a beautiful spirit, and he he really know what to do. So what we got to do, we got to translate that to uh, to to the to the ministers that's in in our city. That's another thing. That's another weakness that we have. The ministers, you know, and that's not all of them. And, but the ministers are the ones who need to step up to the plate. And go out there and do what they're supposed to go. I had proposed, I'm going to say this real quick. I had proposed a, a deal for all the ministers to have a certain location, and that would be their control area. Your job, you know, you, you take four blocks, you take three blocks, you take whatever you think you can handle. And then what we do, we talk to these people. We make sure that, that they understand we're here for you. You see, whatever you, you talk to us, you tell us what you need. And uh, they thought I was nuts. They said, you, you know, we're not going to do nothing. I said, why not? I said, you, you actually you expect them to come to your church, and but my thing is, it was the minister. He was he he would say yes because I saw him doing that in Chicago. All right, thanks, Lord. You know, let me uh, ask you this, Rev. Reverend Pinkney, were you surprised at the how much the minister knows about the Bible? He's he's he knows the Bible oh, back to oh, back. People are talking oh, about the Quran, but he's versed. <laughs> I'm going to say this, too, real quick. He, when he came here, we had something at Lake Michigan College. He had it for me. He, he went to Lake Michigan College, and, he, you know, he invited these preachers to come. And um, there's one preacher, his name is Gully, and he, he told the minister that you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, something like that. And, but the other ministers there were tell, trying to warn him, don't go there. Don't go there. You, he whooped on that man with the Bible. He whooped on him and whooped on him. And he, he told him he know more about Jesus than he would ever know. And, uh, oh, it was ugly. I mean, he he, he just <laughs> went and did and, 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 and took care of his business. He, he know the Bible. When, I'm talking, when you're talking about somebody who know the Bible, that man know the Bible. I I know that too. You know, even even and a lot of the ministers too in the nation. And I'll tell this real quick because we're coming up yeah. on a break. We we had a program down in Miami, and uh, Minister Rasu, Elijah Muhammad's youngest son, mm-hmm. is, was in charge of the mosque in, in Miami. Uh, 
beautiful brother, Mr. Rasu. So we, we had this faith group that was set up and included the nation and one of the churches. One of the black churches says they, they refuse to work with the nation. You know, they tell mm-hmm. me they're, mm-hmm. we're not gonna, they're not going to participate because we have the nation. So I said, well, that's unfortunate. And we'll just have to find somebody else. But hopefully you guys will wake up one day and, and, see, and see, stop letting religion divide us. But the nation yes, stays. Right. <laughs> so that, that, they, that were, they were part of the program. We found another black church who, who had no problem working with, with, with the nation. So I just want to share that with the audience because uh, some people try to divide us by different, you know, not just by if you're a Laker fan or, or you're a Celtic fan, but divide us by religion, by mm-hmm. where you were born, by what, what you look like, by your, your, your color of your skin, or, or, if, or if you're, you know, dark or lighter or whatever, or if you got an accent, they try to divide us. And that's not what the nation's all about. So I, I'm just share that story because I know the minister is really very uh, deep when it comes to the Bible. Bible scholars can't, you know, they, they, yeah. he'll stand toe-to-toe with any Bible. I know you as a, as a Christian minister that you've already experienced that. But I tell you what, let's take a quick break and we'll come back. We'll discuss this some more. You're talking about the Million Man March, folks. This is the 20th anniversary of the march. If you went, let us know. If you did, how did it affect you? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. 19 minutes away from the top of the air. I guess that he's an activist out of Benton Harbor, Michigan. His name is Reverend Ed Pinckney. You've heard him before, fighting for the rights of the black folks in his city, especially on the waterfront. He was fighting for that to get clean water in, in Benton Harbor. We'll be checking him and finding out how that, uh, if, if that materialized yet. We're, with the discussion this morning, it's the anniversary of the 28th uh, March, 20th year anniversary, actually, of the March, the Million Man March. And uh, we're wondering, what were you doing at this time? Because 20 years ago on a Monday, it, that's when it all started. And it, I know at this time, uh, before seven brothers were already on the mall out there. What, what, would, uh, what did it impact you? I want to hear from you. So reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Before we go, uh, continue, though, I just want to remind you that uh, Dr. Malana Karinga, some of you know I'm just a guy who's created uh, Kwanzaa, but he did more. He, he was one of the architects of the Million Man March. In fact, he wrote the manifesto. He was the last person to speak before Minister Farrakhan closed it out. He's going to be here, give us some insight of what it was like to pull it off. Also, reparations advocate Cam Howard will join us, give us an update on, on the struggle for reparations. Later this week, you're going to hear from historian Dr. Walter Williams. He's going to explain. Uh, what happened to Palestine and how it was divided up and where all these other folks have come from and when did they come? He's going to be here. Also, Morgan State University, Dr. Ray Wimbush will join us. Metaphysician, Dr. B, will be here. And Grio, Baba Lumumba, and another thought-provoking discussion for us. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. Reverend Pinkney, Bonnie is calling from D.C. She wants to share her Million Man March experience. Good morning, Bonnie. Yes, good morning. Um, I just wanted to say that I remember this day very well. I was working that day, and um, my sister had been participating as a foot soldier leading up to the march, passing out flyers and so forth. So that's how I had mostly found out about it. And so I decided to slip away from work, jump on the train, see what's going on down there. And when I came off that train, oh, my God, Mm. it was awesome. Yeah, it was just beautiful, wasn't it? It was so awesome. I never did go back to work that day. Mm. It was 
too beautiful. I, I had to continue to experience that. All my black brothers down there so peaceful, getting along, you know, listening to the speakers. They were, um, it was just so awesome. I have great memories of it. And it, it um, helped me to get more involved. And, you know, I joined different organizations as a result of the pledge and, and um, made a couple of products in memory of the um, Million Man March because it was just so awesome. And I, I just pray and hope that, you know, some of that is still in existence out there and, and you know, that feeling would come back in that action. You know, many people took action after that day. And um, I hope we can come together and support that effort again. Um, in memory of that experience and in memory of all that those leaders did. They worked so hard to pull that together. It was such a big job, you know, and there were over a million people there. I walked for blocks and blocks, and I saw nothing but people. You know, I'm a native Washingtonian, and I I walked from, like, 5th Street to um, 14th Street you know, along the mall, and it was beautiful, you know. So thank you for remembering this, and and thank you to the Honorable Louis Farrakhan for um, making this possible, you know, and it's a good memory, and I hope we carry it forward for generations to come. We have to. All right. Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks for sharing Let me say that that was beautiful because, you know, uh, even though, you know, I, I think every year we we, sh- we should think about the Million Man March. I, I think every single year we should do something. We, maybe uh, uh, like you're doing. You see, uh, uh, let's talk about it. Let's let, let's see what we could do. Let's see what we could do better now. Let's see how we can deal with these younger folks. One of the things I, I think at my my meeting on Saturday, I talked about you know the the, the women's in the household. You know. Uh, there's, there's so many women inside the household uh, that's 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 raising these young men, and 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 I I see a major problem with that. You know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not putting down women on it because sometimes they have no other option. You know, but it, you know it, it takes a man to teach a, a young man to become a man, and I, and I think that is is that that's one of the pitfalls that we have fallen into, and that's where the Me Man March. If we keep bringing it up, keep bringing it up, you know, we had a million soldiers, a million soldiers uh, in Washington, D.C. And and, yeah. and that tells me one thing, that we had the spirit of God with us on that day. Amen to that. That's the truth. Okay. Right. Thanks, Bonnie. Have a day, everyone. Mm-hmm. All right. All right, and, and you're absolutely right, Rev. There, there, there was a spirit there. There was a spirit that took over the the whole nation because we you know we carried the broadcast live in, back in L.A. when when it happened, um, and people were wondering, just listening to it because we knew that nobody else would carry it live at that time. You know, whether it be C-SPAN or any of the networks, even BET was still around then. We we knew that nobody would carry it live, and they told us that you, you guys have to carry it live. And that meant carrying from speaker to speaker. And when we started, 
we started four o'clock our time, LA time, and we been yeah. on until four o'clock in the afternoon. But we could, you could feel, like uh, Sister Bonnie just said, you could feel yeah. that spirit uh, through through the microphone, through the different speakers. It was like each one of them was, were touched in in a special way to make their presentation. Your thoughts? Oh, a- 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 absolutely. You know, the the spirit of God was upon them. And uh, and 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 it was such a beautiful thing. You see, see that's something that we leave out. You know, not only was it awesome, but it was beautiful. You see, the beauty of one million black men coming together in a peaceful assembly. You know, there's nothing to look. I'm right now speaking to you. I got chills going all through my body just thinking about it, and that's the spirit. And that's what we want to portray when we're doing things. We want to portray the spirit, you see. And that's something that we got to we got we got to, we got to send that message over and over again to our people so they can get it. A lot of times we don't get stuff now. We don't we don't do what needs to be done right now. We 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 got to make sure that we're building this foundation for the future of our children. Because if we're not building it for the future of our children, you know, it's going to crack. There will be no foundation because that's our future, our children. And that's what the Million Man March did for me. It made sure that I did what I supposed to do for my children. And I made sure that they, my children doing what they're supposed to do for their children and make sure they have the spirit of God within them. And that's what the Million Man March was to me. It brought about the spirit of God. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Let me ask you this, Rev. Do you think any other person could have pulled it off? Uh, do you think any other person, black, white, purple, green, has the respect of our community other than Minister Farrakhan? I, I don't think anyone could have pulled that off other than the minister himself. I don't. I, I know a lot of people. They, you know, they they say things about the nation of Islam and stuff like that, but they they stand tall. And, and, and here, what a lot of people don't know about Minister Louis Farrakhan is that. He walked the streets in Chicago. You see, he walks the streets. Minister Louis Farrakhan, he walks the streets in the city of Chicago talking to these kids. And that's where I got this from. I got walking the community from him. That's why I do it. And you know what it does? It makes you makes you part of it. When I hear someone get shot or something like that, I'm there because I want to make sure I know what's going on and why this happened. What can I do to stop it? You see, 
And that's what, see, that's what the minister do. See, people don't know that about him. You see, they don't know he walks the streets in Chicago. They don't know that him and his group is out there. They don't know how how uh, how he do things in, in in the city of Chicago, and he have his other team do it. Everybody don't want to be out here because they're afraid. These, you, you think you can get some ministers to come out and, and walk the streets in in in, in uh in Chicago or, or 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 New York? They ain't gonna do it. They're not gonna do it. If they don't come to them, they don't get service. And that's a bad that's a bad omen right there. That's bad. Right. You know, but we, there's none, the minister is the only person that I could think of that could actually could have pulled that off. I don't think there's Amen. nobody else that could have done it like that. Nobody. Because totally you can agree. almost say it because it hasn't been done in 28 right. years. Nine away from the top there. Sandra's in Baltimore on line two, wants to speak with us. Good morning, Sandra. Good morning. Good morning, Carl. Carl, let me say this. People are afraid of what they don't know. Mm-hmm. Minister of Farrakhan is beyond any leader that we have. And they're afraid of him because they know he speaks the truth and he can't be bought and he can't be used. So, therefore, they don't like him. We have a lot of black people who will not have him on their shows. They're scared of what the white people might think. There's no scholar out there better than he is. There's no preacher know what he knows. And like the gentleman just was saying, he go where nobody would want to go. And he do things that nobody he can imagine. He's been all over the world, met with all kind of leaders. Show me a black person who's done that. <laughs> and, sit, and he can sit down and talk with the best of scholars. There you go. And we'll prove them, and we'll prove them the where they are wrong at. As far as the Middle East, he's been there. He's been there right. to the Middle East. He's talked to the leaders in the Middle East. But there was, but but we do not want to listen to what he got to say because we want to do what the white man wants. They yeah. want us to think that he's a bad person and he's the greatest person in the world. One hey, of the best. I don't know. I don't know. Nobody else can match him. Show me somebody who can match him right now. None. Nobody. And, and, and I, I got to say, I agree with you. We come for a break. Thank you, Sandra. I'll let Reverend Pinkney respond hey. to what you just said. Okay. So I've known the minister okay. since okay. 1976, Rev. Uh, he used to do, uh, Muhammad Speaks was in Harlem, a station we worked in Harlem. And, and my job was to make sure to tape him, put him, we're using reel to reel tape him every Friday at four o'clock. And there were two brothers from the nation. One would come with him and one would be at the station when he got there. So that's where the conversations I had with him back from then. And we've spoken several times since over the years, but, but Sanders to me is right. And I want to get your opinion. There's very few people who come, who can debate minister Farrakhan, you know, because oh. I've, because I've seen him, I've seen him in action and I've heard him. He offered me counsel. And we had these discussions early. So I, I want to get your thoughts on what Sandra said too, because She's co-signed what I already know from knowing him. But I want to get your thoughts after we come back from the traffic and weather in the news in Baltimore. Folks, you want to join this conversation with Reverend Pinckney? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. And the DMV run FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Keep
Good morning again, family. You just joined us. Our guest is Reverend Ed Pinkney. He's an activist, a preacher out of Benton Harbor, Michigan. And before we left, we're talking about the Million Man March. This is the anniversary of the Million Man March. And we just had, we had a call from Sandra in Baltimore and, and told us, was, she was just, uh, you know, enunciating the, how, how smart the minister was with, with his debating skills, I'll put it that way. And I, I had to concur because I've seen him, I've seen him in different debates where people try to uh, t- time up and he, he just knocked them away. But mm. you had, you've, You've had several conversations with the minister, so you can attest to that, Reverend Pinkney. Oh, absolutely. Matter of fact, uh, I used to have breakfast with him and some of the Koji and uh, Baptist ministers. And uh, once a month, he used to speak at at this thing. Me and my wife would go and listen to him, and he tears them up. He gave them them an education, and when he leaves there, I'd be so at odds. I said, I I didn't know that, you know, and I've been reading the Bible all my life, you know, and he, I mean, he, he, he's so well read when it comes to the Bible that, you know, it's so incredible. I told you the story earlier when we got on how this guy told him that uh, he didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God, you know, and I, I tell you, when that man left there with his tail between his legs, he ran out of that place because the minister knows the Bible. He knows it backwards and forwards. He can take you to whatever level that you want to go on. There is, I have not met, because one of the things he used to tell me when he used to come to my home, he used to always talk about he was willing to debate the rabbis. They're top scholars. He said, I want them. He said, he said, this is what, you know, we live for moments like this. They can't do it, and they won't do it, he said. He used to tell me that they won't do it. They will not, you know, he said, he said they will not come and, and, and have a conversation with me about the Bible or anything else because they know I know. And I said, yeah, I, I got to give it to him. He do know. And I, I tell you, because when I used to listen to him, I'd be at odd, and all the ministers, they'd be at odd. They don't, they don't even know uh, 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 probably half of what he knows. And I, I just thought that he's such an incredible guy, and, you know, and he deserved better, you see. This is the thing that a lot of people, he done done a lot for this nation, you know. And he have done, he did it, with, he went beyond the call of duty to make it happen. You see, and, and it's unfortunate that sometimes people, and then you got ministers don't want to talk. They don't want to talk to him because they're afraid of him, you see, more than anything else. They're afraid that he might put them to shame. And and I think that's the biggest thing that I take away from people not wanting to uh, uh, have him at his church and stuff like that. They they do that because they're intimidated by Minister Louis Farrakhan. Uh, and I concur because, you know, one of the things we did and I mentioned we used to t- what, what happened was uh, back in, in the 70s, radio was required to do a certain amount of news, certain amount of uh, religious programming and public service programming. Uh, we cho- chose the nation of Islam and, and the station was owned by Percy Sutton. He had to go to Congress to, to say, you know, because they said the nation was a, was a cult. It wasn't a religion. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we, we, so we we won that war. So because they were complaining that we weren't doing any religious programming. And we said our religious programming is, is from the nation of Islam. That was the mosque number seven in Harlem. And Minister Farrakhan was in charge of the mosque number seven in Harlem. So he would come to the station, Reverend Pinkney, with no notes. He'd just tell me, just give yeah. him a, you know, open and close my hand with, to, to tell him he's got 10 minutes. I would marvel. This brother would sit there in front of this microphone and go for an hour 
without mm-hmm. no crib notes or anything. He just went on, and then I'd I'd give him the the, the, the double open and close fist sign. You got ten minutes, and he nailed it all. I was like, wow, that ta- that takes a kind of oratorical skill, not just to 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 be able to present your your a cogent argument to the people for sixty the sixty uh, minutes, but also to f- to get it on time. Because what happened? These broadcasts were going out to all the black stations, all the progressive black stations across the country, but w- it was taped in New York. And I, and I was, I was, I was just marveling every Friday. It happened without, he didn't go over a minute. It was under a minute. He never stammered. He never stuttered. It, I, I, it was, it was just, it was a beautiful thing just to watch because I was doing my work and then I just, and I'm having it in the background and listen. He, 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 he wasn't reaching for anything. He, he was just fluid. It was, it was, he's an amazing speaker. That's all I can say. Oh, and that he is. I mean, like I told you, for about three, four years, you know, at least once a month, I would be in Chicago with them, and uh, and he would. Oh man, I I I couldn't wait to 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 go there and hear him speak. I could. It was it was just something that me and, and my wife we looked it forward to. Uh, you know, this is the uh, the Tuesday that the minister is going to be speaking. Let's pack it up. Let's make it. You know, and and that that was so because. He like you just said, and and he don't have notes, you know. He he, he never uh, 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 work with notes. He just go right through whatever he said. Even at uh, when you go to a uh, um, uh, Founders Day, uh, uh, you know, in Chicago, uh, you know, he, he he go for three four hours straight through with no notes. Beautiful. It's it's just a beautiful situation. And I you know, I am so glad that I got a chance to know him personally, you see. To me, I would never, never, ever forget Minister Louis Farrakhan. And he's one of the greatest men that I have ever met in my whole life. That's I mean, none of them I, I have not met anybody who can compare with him. Nobody. And that's that's Folks. that's my take on it. Yeah, if you just join us, uh, we're discussing the Million Man March. Today is the 28th anniversary, and of course, the march was put together by Minister Farrakhan. And later this morning, uh, Dr. Milana Karenga, the, the person who was created with creating uh, Kwanzaa, he was an integral part of the, the march. You know, he 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 wrote the manifesto for the march, and he's he was also the last person to speak before Minister Farrakhan closed out the march. So he's going to be here and he's going to tell us some behind the scenes how we pulled it off because this was 28 years ago today on a Monday, just like today. People were talking about the Million Man March. People flew in from all over the country. They got on buses. They got on trains to go to Washington, D.C., and there was no problem. We want to get to your thoughts. Were you at the march? Did it impact you? Or even if you didn't go to the march, because I know you heard about it, because we all heard about the march, did it impact you in any way, shape, or form? I met so many brothers, uh, Reverend Pinkney, who decided to join the nation after going to the march. They weren't, they weren't members of the nation, but mm-hmm. they, they heard the call, and they went. And I was just talking to this brother, this a video producer, and we, we were just having the conversation, you know, and he, he just brought up, you know, this is the, the reason why I joined the nation. And I said, oh, you're part of the nation? He says, yeah. And he, he told me how he went to the Million Man March, and it changed him so much. So when he came back home, he decided he decided not only to join the nation, but he got the marching orders from the from Minister Farrakhan. He, mm-hmm. he, he rekindled his his relationship with with his children and his and their mother, and they got married. And he says it's the, it was the most transformative thing that in his life. 
And I was going, wow. He says, yeah. He says, he said, brother, you, you don't understand how, how the, 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 and the glow that when he says, after the, the, the minister finished speaking and the glow that he had came and he, he, he lived in Florida and he went back home all the way back home, man. He, he was just changed and he was just in tears. We want to get to your thoughts, Rev. What do you think about that? We got some people want to talk to you, by the way. Oh, ab- absolutely. Uh, 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 I, I, I tell you, that that was I, I did not come, and uh, but that was one of the best uh, things that had happened in this thing because it, it brought with it the spirit of God. You see that that's that's what I'll be looking for. I'll be looking for the spirit when I'm doing things, and I think that the minister Louis Farrakhan, what he did, he had brought he brought back the spirit of God to our community. And that's what he's going to continue to do. That's what he's going to continue to talk about. And I love that. I love that because that's where we're at and that's where we should be. There's no other thing because, like, you know, we have to make sure. And that brother that you talked about, that is huge. He went back and married this woman and took care of his children. I can't ask for nothing more than that. That's 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 a story right there that needs to be told. All right. Cam Howard, I guess he's up next. Before we go to Cam Howard called in, uh, he's in Chicago. He's usually out of L.A. He's part of the Wake Up Squad. Good morning, Howard. Good morning, Carl. I didn't go to the march, but my brother did, and um, he's always been a spiritual person anyway. We had to um, think of one of my uncles. He's in paradise now. I consider him my mentor. He was a member of the nation. And um, what I like to say is that the minister had an effect on all of us black people. We, if we didn't go to the march, we had to hear KJL, you know, on the radio station and things. And he had an impact on us. Every time he came out here to the coast, we packed the place, Carl. You witnessed that, you know. He had such a far-reaching thing about him that he's able to touch us because we thought he's one of us. We were high-class preachers riding around in the Cadillac all the time. And while we're in Chicago, I've been making my little tours going around different places. Now, I did go by the Mosque Miriam. It's very impressive. Oh, the building is very impressive. You got the, uh, uh, the School of Islam there. I believe I can't recall the righteous name, but it's there and uh, very impressive. And the minister has had an effect. And white folks don't like him because he can debate them. And I've heard him say in different venues here in Los Angeles, they will challenge the Jewish rabbis. Mm-hmm. They don't want that brother. They don't want the brother because he will, he will turn them out. And he's not running from me, don't hide, and he always challenged them to a debate. I heard him a number of occasions challenge these guys in the debate. And I, I I can't wait till Friday come so I can call in again and talk about this thing in the Middle East, you know. It's very deep. And, and I got a note from Mark from Anaheim last night. I'll, I'll share with you. I'll probably wait till Friday and share with you. But Howard, I thank you for your call because we're coming with a break. And I want to get Reverend Pinkney a chance to respond to what, what you just said. Rep? All right. You know, uh, uh, what he's saying is, 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 one, is right on point. And, and, and you're talking about the minister. When you talk about the minister debate, he would debate a, a matter of fact, not just the, the rabbis, he'll debate anybody. I don't, I don't care who it is, if, and, and, he, and he's going to tell you the truth. And if you can't handle the truth, that's on you, and that's what he do. I mean, I, I can sit here and listen to him talk. I'm telling you, he used to come to my house and sit at my kitchen table and talk for seven straight hours. And he always tell, tells a story, I am not going to stay at your house until it gets dark 
uh, I promise you, and he said, uh, uh, I'm not going to do it. And before we know it, it's dark, or we have gotten into a conversation, and he talks about everything. He talks about how, how he, you know, uh, he wants to debate the rabbi. He wants to debate the even the ministers here, he said, I like to debate them all at the same time. He said, I, 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 I wouldn't mind doing that because they cannot handle me. They do not know the Bible like I know. He said, I know it backwards and forward. And that was his words. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally impressed. I love the man. I think the man is, is, is beyond uh, anybody I have met. And uh, he will continue to be my friend. All right. And Reverend Penny, I thank you for, for uh, sticking with us this morning and discussing the, the Million Man March, or the, the origin of the Million Man March. we got to take a quick break. So I want to thank you. If folks want to help you out build that basketball court out there in Benton Harbor for our young people, how can they reach you? They, they can call me at 269-369-8257. That's 269-369-8257. Or they can email me at Banco. B A N C O nine three four two at S B C Global dot net. Call me. Let's talk right. about it. Let's All right, talk about it. Thanks, Rep. You take care of yourself. All righty. Folks, we've got to take a short break here. We've got to check the traffic and we'll come back. Cam Howard's going to join us. Brother Sekou's got a question about the role that Farrakhan played in Malcolm's assassination. You can ask that to uh, Dr. Karenga. He's going to be next. But he's tell you about the, the, you know, the role that uh, Jay Gahuva played. <laughs> COINTELPRO played a lot in that. So, uh, but, uh, but I'll let the, uh, if you call back later when uh, Dr. Karenga's on, I'm sure he'll explain that to you. As I mentioned, we've got to get caught up on the latest traffic and weather in our different cities. We'll be back in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOL. B. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour. Cam Howard has joined us now. He's our guest. He's a, a reparations advocate. Good morning, Cam. How are you this morning, brother? Excellent. How about yourself? Uh, I'm good. I'm good as well. Thanks. <laughs> you know, we started off talking about the Million Man March and was the, was reparations ever on the table at the Million Man March? Do you know? Oh, of course there was. Yeah, Doctor uh, Conrad World and uh, many others pushed the issue of reparations for the Million Man March, and even with the Second March, it was also a, a platform. So yeah, okay. yeah, I'm glad to hear that because you know we hear what hammered the march, but the reparations wasn't in the forefront as it is to uh, as it is today. So I'm glad they they did discuss it at the Million Man March. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, but uh, what's going on with with the reparations issue? Where are we today? Well, you know, we're uh, in what I would say we're in a very um, good, good position to be in. Uh, also, we're in a position where uh, there's not a lot of people who are aware of the position that we're in, and so we're not taking advantage of it. And what I mean by that, you know, there's, there's a ton of energy in the movement right now. Uh, most of that energy is focused on local reparations, which is great. Uh, it has its, you know, its purposes um, to propel the federal initiative and to bring some limited resources into communities where resources are necessary and uh, to, to help us build momentum for the federal redress. So it's, that's great. But a lot of people are leaving that to the only form of action they believe they can take right now since there's a Republican Congress and all that. But actually, we're in a very 
powerful position to be in nationwide because we're, we're approaching a democratic election for president, and uh, we have demonstrated, and the Democratic Party uh, in particular understands that there's a massive dependency on the black vote in order for them to win. Uh, there's been many articles written by major um, mainstream publications, Time Magazine, The New Yorker, Washington Post, et cetera, that have indicated not only the dependency of the Democratic Party on the black vote, but also their fear of losing uh, and worry of losing a large McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Well, hopefully I haven't lost Cam. Sound like his, his line dropped. But we, we'll try and get him back. Kevin, see if we can get him back 24 minutes after the top of the auction. We want to find out what the very latest going on in reparations because they had a conference in Atlanta. I think it was last week or maybe the week before when we found out how that went down and if there's going to be a follow-up because reparations, as you mentioned, it's a political season we're in now and we can use some leverage. Also, another question I want to ask uh, uh, Brother Cam is, is we talk about the federal reparations push, but also if he thinks that it'd be better if we localize it, if each one of us in our different cities, our different areas, uh, put reparations on, on, on the docket and let's go after it for reparations. And, and, and we can use the people who are running for office. And, you know, first question you need to ask them, do you support reparations? Yes or no? Are you, are you, uh, and if we, should that be a litmus, litmus test, whether or not we should support them? So, Cam, I, I know you're back. Uh, I'll let you finish what you were saying before we, the, your line dropped. And then tell us about the recent uh, conference, reparations conference that took place in Atlanta. I don't know where I dropped off at. <laughs> so, uh, I I was All right. Well, it was, well, well, let's pick it up with, with Atlanta because there was a reparations co- uh, conference in Atlanta. For the folks who didn't go, what happened? Uh, it was a pretty good conference. Um, the goal of the conference was to uh, – was put on first was put on by – hosted by the Lost Foundation of Islam under the leadership of Dr. Si- uh, Silas Muhammad, Minister Silas Muhammad. And um, they had been working for years with the United Nations and uh, other international uh, uh, in, in the international arena around getting the term Afro-descendant recognized uh, as a international term that describes people who were descendants of those who uh, ancestors were taken from the. Uh, arrived from the African continent through the transatlantic chattelization of enslavement system, and um, whereby there will be international rights that this group of people could 
petition for in the United Nations that uh, you couldn't do if you weren't didn't have a designation of a particular people. And so what they try to do is get a buy-in uh, on this whole notion that we are for descendants, which, again, is already recognized, but a lot of people are not aware of it. And they wanted to bring the reparations community together to put together a national plan. It's not something that hasn't been uh, attempted and, and still been attempted by other groups. So it adds to the movement. There were uh, many uh, groups who they are representing in, in the movement, leadership in the movement, uh, from the Nation of Islam and, uh, and COBRA and uh, Reparations Institute, uh, just many organizations. I think they had maybe 40 organizations that were listed as sponsors to the to the program, and it was allowed for a lot of a lot of deep conversation on the movement and where we could unify the movement. So it just adds to, you know, the, the current momentum that's going on in the movement. All right, 28 at the top there. You mentioned the UN. How is that going? Because uh, many people have said we should take this issue to the United Nations. Uh, but you're saying that it's already been discussed at the UN? Where where are we at, are we at with that? So um, the UN approved a permanent form of people of African descent probably three years ago and had two, the, the permanent forms had two meanings. That was a permanent form of indigenous people. It's a permanent um, uh, body within the UN structure. Uh, it's not something that has to be uh, implemented every you know, session or something. It's a permanent body. And for the first time, there's a permanent body of people of African descent. And they came out with an official report uh, probably last month that states that, you know, reparations is a key issue that uh, that has that the U.N. And, uh, and member states of the United Nations, 194 nations, especially those who have history of, of enslavement and colonialism, has to address this issue of reparations. They've, uh, they're appealing to the International Criminal Court, Court of Justice, to offer a memorandum uh, on the whole is notion of paying reparations to people of African descent, which is something that they could do, something that we couldn't do, but it's something that they can do as a permanent forum. And so they're asking the criminal court to um, to look at the legality of, uh, look at the question of legality on uh, these nation states who have, were complicit in the crimes against our humanity on paying reparations. So there's a lot going on in the movement. Uh, we're not getting all the information out um, in, in ways that our community can can utilize it to further our cause here in America. But, you know, there's a lot going on. There was a meeting in uh, Barbados uh, for a number of lawyers, primarily lawyers, uh, international lawyers who met there to actually write up the petition to the International Court of Justice and uh, of course, CARICOM was heavily represented there. Uh, yeah, a whole lot is going on. Just recently, the Jesuits uh, agreed to pay $27 million to descendants of uh, the Georgetown 272. Um, and it's just a lot going on. The California uh, completed this task force in, in, in July of uh, this year, and uh, there's been a bill introduced in the state that would that would 
create an office of black uh, Chicagoans, uh, I'm not black Californians, I should say, uh, which would be an infrastructure for whatever res- reparations resources come down through the state. That's a model that's probably going to be picked up and, 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 impl- and duplicated around the country. So there's a ton of stuff going on. There's other convenings that are being planned uh, in, in, in the uh, reparations movement uh, later this month. In November, December, there's, there's also a convening. So there's a march on Washington, November 4th, uh, to highlight the issue of reparations. There was a recent march on Washington. At the same time, the conference was happening in Atlanta uh, for reparations. So there's just a ton of stuff going on. All right, 29 away from the top there. While your phone dropped, I was, one of the things I mentioned that I want to ask you about, do you think we should, instead of focusing on the federal reparations fight, do it locally? What they do in California, Illinois, in different cities around the country. Should we? Should you have different reparation groups in each and every major city uh, and suburb, for that matter, pushing for reparations? Would that be better than just waiting to see what the federal decision will be? No, I don't think it's better. Uh, I think that uh, I, I wrote a pamphlet probably in 2020 called Laying the Foundation of Local Reparations, and I laid out the four purposes of local reparations. Local reparations is actually needed, is necessary, you know, um, is necessary for a push for federal reparations, certainly. So there's tons of scores of uh, local initiatives happening around the country. Um, but the greater amount of resources can only come from the federal government. And we shouldn't, even though a lot of energy is in local reparations, and we're trying to magnify that significantly, um, the manner and method in which we get the, the resources for, for what I call for reparations are only going to come from the federal government. Local reparations, I, I stated in that pamphlet, was a form of triage. And triage is really, you know, to be able to stop the, the bleeding until other resources can come. And, and in local areas, you only have a limited amount of resources to apply to a reparations. And it's not like the federal government where you can, you can uh, uh, print resources, print dollars, print money, you know, and put as, money, money, as much money into the economy as you choose is necessary. Um, and, and so local reparations are necessary. However, we cannot take our minds off of the federal federal effort. And it is, especially at a time when I, w- I was talking about how much power we possess to within the democratic process right now that we could actually coerce the president into signing the executive order. And that's, that's really the goal right now is to get an executive order passed by the president because it can't happen in Congress. And we always stressed and always knew, those of us who were working real close with the movement, H.R. 40, knew that we weren't going to pass this bill in Congress. We wanted to pass it in the House and get as much sponsorship as possible in the Senate to demonstrate to the president that there was political will within his party for this issue and then get him to implement or establish a commission through executive order. We've shown the political will in the Democratic Party by having over 217 confirmed yes votes in the House didn't go to the full house for a vote and 20 plus senators uh, co-sponsoring the Senate bill with the Senate leader, uh, 11 members, 10 members of the 21 Senate committee chairs 
were co-sponsors with, with a number of other senators, about 10 other senators, total about 21 senators who had co-sponsored the Senate bill. So we demonstrated to the president, the polls show that 65% of Democrats favor reparations in the form of education. Uh, when you take cash. Right. Out, and hold that though right there, because we got to take a, a quick break. When you come back, though, explain to us how, how are you going to get past the gatekeepers? You know, they got some gatekeepers that look like us who are not pushing for reparations, who could get by and right. to do it with a stroke of a pen. How are you going to get beyond those, 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 uh, the gatekeepers? I'll let you explain that when we get back. But we got to take a quick break here and check the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. 26 minutes away from the top of the hour, discussing reparations with Brother Cam Howard. You want to join this conversation? Reach out to us at 800 450 Zero seventy eight seventy six phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on ten ten WOLB and also in the DMV on FM ninety five point nine AM fourteen fifty WOL where information is power. And good morning again, family, and thanks for starting your week with us again. We're discussing uh, reparations with Cam Howe. There was a big reparations conference uh, last week in Atlanta. He's giving us up to date on that. And, and where are we with the reparations? And one of the key questions about reparations is. Uh, what do, what do we want? What do we deserve? We'll tackle those questions in a moment. Let me just remind you, coming up later this morning, though, we're going to speak with uh, Dr. Milana Karenga. Some of you know him as, as the, the man behind uh, Kwanzaa. But he was also instrumental in uh, working with the, the Minister Farrakhan with the Million Man March. In fact, he wrote the manifesto and he was the last person to speak before the minister. He's going to join us because uh, today is the 20th anniversary of the, the Million Man March, which is the largest gathering of black men in Washington, D.C. Later this week, historian Dr. Walter Williams is going to be with us. He's going to explain how Palestine came to be, and now he's also going to explain how the invaders, when they came, and what this fight that you see taking place right now, what it's all about. Also, Morgan State University, Dr. Ray Wimbush will be with us. A metaphysician, Dr. B, will also join us, and Griot, Baba Lumumba, too, will be here. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. So, Cam, the reparations fight if they decided on what is it that we actually want from reparations is it cash is it land is it tax breaks uh, college education you know all of the above or, or any help us out here yes all of those things brother carl I, I think you go in any space in america and those five things you you stated is going to be probably in the in the top 10 of any list no matter where you go land cash tax breaks education, health benefits, um, curriculum overhaul, apology. I mean, all those things, you know, the, the international community has given us a standard and framework for reparations called for reparations, where a government must engage in these five components and, and build uh, proposals and processes within these five components to give, to make sure the repair or the, what, what they state that the consequences of the harms are erased, uh, and those five components of cessation and guarantees of non-reputation and, uh, to create uh, policy that stops the ongoing bad acts and ensures that those bad acts is not resurfaced in another name like slavery did during the Jim Crow period. And then there's uh, restitution. That's where the education and, and the economic investment into businesses like businesses, land, those type of things are part of restitution and it's compensation, which is, you know, um, a monetary uh, contribution or monetary payment of uh, to satisfy continued uh, injury. 
And then there's satisfaction with the apologies and museums, curricular changes, truth and reconciliation, those things are part of satisfaction, which the goal is to return the dignity back to a people whose dignity was eroded or, or damaged as a result of the crimes that were committed against them. Uh, when we look at the image of the black man, and for black people, period, all around the world, it's a damaged uh, picture. Uh, and it's because of the crimes that have been committed against us, not because we're a damaged people, but because um, they project us in a certain way globally. And so satisfaction is a, a part of repair. And then there's rehabilitation for the heart, mind, and spirit damage. And so a lot of things have to go into the area of rehabilitation. You know, a lot of trauma exists in our community, especially among our young people in a city like Chicago, attempted suicides among young people, young black, uh, uh, among black youth, teenagers, uh, not even young adults, increased, uh, doubled from 2021 to 2022, from 2020 to 2021. Um, so there's a lot of trauma in our community. There's a lot of uh, inherited uh, injury, health injury in the area of transgeneration epigenetic inheritance that leaves us vulnerable to a host of uh, illnesses early in life. So reparations has to deal with all of that, all of the continued impact uh, from enslavement, from Jim Crow segregation, and from this neo-apartheid uh, system we live in today. Uh, reparations must deal with all of that. All right. 14 away from the top. Last time we spoke, I mentioned the fact that our community was impacted acutely by the crack cocaine epidemic. And then we've known for the fact that we found out, you know, thanks to Gary Webb, that it was this government who was bringing in the drugs and that whole debacle that was, you know, folks, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, just Google his name, Gary Webb. And and, uh, and and Dark Alliance is, is the story, and that's the book. He, he actually wrote chapters uh, in the newspaper, the San Jose Mercury News, and then he put it into a book, and somehow they said he committed suicide by firing two bullets in the back of his head. But that's another story. But he proved that this country, and we had the CIA, we had the CIA actually come, we were in L.A., come to town to try to disprove that what he said wasn't true. But your thoughts on that? Do 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 our folks who are impacted by the crack cocaine uh, scandal should should they be uh, available for reparations? Right now, the resi- residual effects are still being felt. Uh, most definitely, residual effect is still being felt, and it's felt a lot of places, mostly most acutely in the shift of values in our community uh, from the whole drug. Um, industry and that whole drug episode in America. But, yeah, you know, crack cocaine definitely um, should be an area. There's a a movement around drug war reparations uh, that, that speaks directly to that. And I was at a conference in New York that met on drug war reparations. And from the period, I think, 1973 is the period they, they, they start at. But I think it should go for earlier because crack cocaine wasn't the first drug that was intentionally adopted to our communities. Heroin was in the 60s and early 70s to put down the black power movement. Um, we have, uh, there was some testimony by some Italian mobsters who said that the government intentionally worked with them to put the heroin in our community uh, for that purpose. So, you know, that wasn't the first instance. So, But there is a movement in this country 
around drug war reparations and uh, it's gaining momentum. Uh, I know here in Illinois, um, there was money set aside uh, for uh, initiatives around the war on drugs. Uh, Most wasn't directly for reparations, but uh, a lot of organizations that were doing work in the community could apply for resources and and get some of those resources, do some of the work that they're doing. But uh, definitely the crack cocaine epidemic has left a tremendous impact on our families on the value system uh, within black families and the black community, um, the sense of apathy in our community, of course, the, the, the trauma that still exists in our community, where our children are facing, the fear that, that uh, is overwhelming in our community, fear of elders, of young people, fear of young people to go, you know, to, to engage in any type of, you know, just community uh, activities our fear of being jumped on, shot, whatever. I mean, it's a tremendous impact that we're still feeling from the uh, heightened violence that occurred in, with, the, with the crack uh, cocaine epidemic. Well, let me jump in and ask you this, a ten away from the topic. Do you think our people understand it? Do you think they connect those dots? Or they, you know, because a lot of times we see it happening, but we just don't believe that this government would do this to us as a people and and that the, the breakup of the black family and they blame us you know the, the people and when there's a hand especially with the drugs coming in your thoughts do you yep. think our people understand yeah. that can, they put those dots together more and more they begin to do that you know at, at first you know just like reparations it was a you know a black nationalist fringe issue you know those radical the radical left or those radical people, militant people were just talking. Uh, and, and we were saying all these things back then in the eighties and nineties and early two thousands. Uh, however, as reparations began to come mainstream, they're hearing these, these arguments that we've been making for decades and that they are beginning to connect the dots. Surely more of them have to, you know, but I think that it's an upward trend and I don't think we're going to go backwards. You know, people are beginning to see that, you know, our condition is directly related to enslavement era crimes, to apartheid Jim Crow era crimes, you know, theft of land, et cetera, uh, the terror that took place during apartheid, the, the billion-dollar uh, theft, the, the destruction of black business communities during the period of apartheid all around the country. It wasn't just um, Tulsa, but hundreds of black business communities were destroyed at some point during the apartheid period, even here in Chicago. Billions of dollars stolen in schemes targeting toward black families like the contract buying scheme in Chicago. Billions of dollars plundered from our community during the predatory lending scheme, $200 billion nationwide, $4 billion here in the city of Chicago. So we're getting to, to connect the dots of multi periods of multi-billion dollar plunder from our communities and, and, and being able to see how it directly affects the condition, the, the economic conditions of our community, the employment conditions of our community today, the family conditions of our community, the safety in our community, the health conditions of our community. We're beginning to make all of those uh, connections now that we weren't in the past. And so, you know, it strengthens our call for reparations and it, and it also, um, uh, answers all of the uh, defense obstructions 
to those by those who say that reparations are not due when we can show this continued impact. All right, uh, eight away from the top. I'll come on a break real soon. But what's being done for our young people? Because right? some of our young people, not all of them, it's just a few of them that, that seem to be confused and, and and doing things that it's just a total embarrassment to to us as a, as a group. What are you reaching out to these young people? Because I think if they understand how the role, the reparations, the role the government played in, in all this, that because they they think they're doing it all by themselves. If they, if you could reach them, what are you saying to them? And I'll let you uh, come because we're coming up on a break real soon. Because and what are they doing? And because uh, that, that's what I'm concerned about. That our young people don't understand about reparations. They they don't know their history. They don't know who they are. That's the first thing. Else they wouldn't be involved in in some of this negative behavior. But I want to find out if they were in, or were at the reparations conference in Atlanta, and what is the outreach to get some of these young people to understand what's going on? Because I think if you could reach these young people. They wouldn't be involved in those negative energies that they're displaying right now. So I'll tell you what, I'll let you talk about that when we get back. We, we have to take a short break. We've got to check the traffic and weather in our different cities. Also, we've got to get an update on the news for our listeners in Baltimore. Folks, you want to join this conversation with Cam Howard, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV run FM. 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL or information is power. Hey, good morning, family. Many after the top there with our guest Cam Howard. Momentarily, we're speaking with Dr. Karenga. Dr. Karenga's one of the architects behind the Million Man March. Today's the 28th anniversary of that historic gathering. We get some information from Dr. Karenga, how it came about. But let's wrap up with Cam Howard. So, Cam, I talk, before we left for the traffic and weather update, I was asking about young people. Are you seeing more young people getting involved in the, in the fight for reparations? Are they, are they being educated on it? Well, yeah, you know, young people are just like, you know, uh, every other demographic. You know, they have to see how... It, a certain issue benefit them, and that's what we have to, to, to show how it benefits them. But a lot of young people, I think you were talking also about those of us, those of uh, young people who are engaged in some of the bad acts in our community, particularly the violence in our community, you know, they are locked into a system of survival at this point. You know, they have been miseducated um, by the system. Uh, they are unemployable by most standards. And um, they have only the informal economy in which to take care of themselves. And the informal economy is often violent. And so we have to, to find a way to intentionally bring them out of the informal economy into a state where they can be employed in, a, in the informal economy. And what we're trying to do in that regard is introduce the repair to basic income around the country in cities that prepare these young men you know, re-educate them, prepare them for, you know, uh, legitimate employment opportunities. You're going to have millions of jobs coming into inner cities in the next few years uh, with the infrastructure plan and Build Back Better plan if that passes. But uh, we, our, our children are not going to be prepared to even take advantage of those those uh, employment opportunities. And we have to, to, to prepare them. We have to intentionally prepare them. And so until we can find ways to bring them out of this survival mode, uh, within the informal economy, within the drug economy, or within, you know, a lot of young people not even dealing drugs, they're sticking up and carjacking, which is, you know, uh, part of that, 
legacy of, of uh, crack cocaine and all that. Because most of these young people, many of these young people in this in this element, they're three and four generations, two, three, and possibly four generations fatherlessness, fatherless. And that fatherlessness is a result of mass incarceration, is a result of moving black, uh, the, the industries moving out of inner cities and black men being uh, historically unemployed, pushed out of the formal labor economy. All of that has determined uh, whether these children grow up in homes with a father present. And when there's no father present, you know, there's a lot of negative social factors that come out of that. And these young people are, like I say, two, three, and four generations fatherless. And we have to stop that cycle. And stopping that cycle, we have to prepare them to exit the informal economy and get them involved in the informal economy. And reparations should do that. And Cam, before we let you go, how can folks reach you? They want to keep tabs and, and find out more about reparations. So I'm at uh, Reparations United. Uh, that's the new organization I'm with. Uh, you can go to reparationsunited.org. Cam at reparationsunited.org is the email address. Um, there is a, you talked about the um, local reparations activities. There's a national local reparations summit symposium being organized being held in Evanston on November 30th to December 2nd. You want to go to First Repair if your city is doing anything in local reparations. You might want to uh, come and, and learn from scores of other activists in various cities who have started or are trying to start local initiatives. Uh, so that's the National Local Reparations Symposium. Go to firstrepair.org for that. All right. Thanks, Cam. And and thanks for, you know, staying on the reparations case for so long. You've been doing it for quite a while now. But keep us in the loop. Thanks, Brother Colin. Just let me say the last point, man. We have the power to coerce this president into signing an executive order to establish reparations commission. The Democrats are dependent on us, and they're worried that uh, the young black men hold the key, and they're going to be targeting a lot of resources for young black men. And we have to be in those spaces telling these young black men that, you know, we'll, they need to earn your vote by a reparations commission before the election. And that's the message we're putting out. All right. Message well sent. Thanks. Thanks, Cam. Yep. All right. That's Cam Howard, yep. folks, out, out of Chicago. Uh, reparations United. If you want to find out about reparations, he's a man you need to talk to. He gave you his, all his contact information. If you didn't call us here at the station, we have it for you. Six minutes after the top of the hour, let's welcome Dr. Karengo. Barragana, Dr. Karengo, welcome back to the program. Barragana, Carlos. Thank you for the invitation. It's always good and having me, man, mark day of that day. This is very all important right. that we mark this occasion. And before we get started, let me just tell the listeners a little bit about your background, because, you know, some people, they, they know of you, your involvement with Kwanzaa, but they don't know all of you, uh, what you have done or, or what you're doing, actually. So let me just share the audience. So Dr. Karenga is, is still a professor and chair of the Department of African, Africana Studies at Cal State Long Beach. He's also the creator of the Pan-African Cultural Holiday, Kwanzaa, and the Nguzu Saba, the Seven Principles, and author of the authoritative text titled Kwanzaa, Celebration of Family, Community, and Culture. He's an activist scholar. He's 
vice chair of the organization, us and the National Association of Kawaida Organizations, and also the executive director of African American Cultural Center and the Kawaida Institute of Pan-African Studies, also the co-chair of the Black Community, Clergy, and Labor Alliance, known as the BCCLA. Dr. Karenga is also an author of numerous scholarly articles and books, including Essays and Struggle, Position and, An- and Analysis, Kawaida and Questions of Life and Struggle, Ma'at, The Moral Ideal of Ancient Egypt, A Study of Classical African Ethics, Introduction to Black Studies, the fourth edition, Husia, uh, Sacred Wisdom of Ancient Egypt, Udia Ifa, The Ethical Teachings. He's also currently writing a major work, a major work on the social and ethical philosophy of Malcolm X, titled The Liberation Ethics of Malcolm X, Critical Consciousness, Moral Grounding, and Transformative Struggle. Dr. Karenga is the recipient of numerous awards for scholarship, leadership, and service, including the Paul Robeson Zora Neale Houston Award for Scholarly Work of African World Culture and the CRLR James Award for Outstanding Publications of Scholarly Works that Advance the Discipline of African, Africana, I should say, in Black Studies, and also the Presidential Award for Exemplary Service and Outstanding Contributions to the Field of Black Studies, all of this from the National Council of Black Studies. It's also the subject of a book by Dr. Malefi Asante, titled Maulana Karenga, An Intellectual Portrait. Dr. Karenga also co-wrote the Million Man Manifesto, and he was actually the last person to, to speak about it after Minister Farrakhan on today, 28 years ago today. So, Dr. Karenga, take us back 28 years ago today. But before that, how did, this, how did the, your involvement with the Million Man March, what happened? How did, did Minister Farrakhan reach out to you? How did, how did that start? McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. We reached out. Uh, thanks for that, uh, Con. We reached out to Minister Farrakhan because what has happened, let me give him credit first for just having this idea, and it was such a dynamic and critical idea at this time, and give the nation credit for being the core uh, that brought this off. But the 318 local organizing committees and communities made this work. So the Million Man March started with the idea that Minister Farrakhan had, and he put it forth, and he put it forth in male-centered ways. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but people misinterpret it, right? We, we, we have male-female uh, divisions in Africa, not divisions in a negative sense, but distinctions, right? So we, we, we got uh, male and female groups inside the church. We got sororities and fraternities. We got different ways of doing this. There's nothing wrong. What people were arguing, though, is that when he said that the women should— <clears throat> stay home and this is mainland man, that it was phrased at a time when people were sensitive to male chauvinism and sexism and wanted to make sure this wasn't an exclusion. Now, when women have all women marching, people don't say anything. But with men, and especially black men, 
there's, there's an issue, right? And so what we did was reach out to um, Minister Farrakhan, and he was very receptive, and we held a meeting at Third World Press, right? I suggested we contact him and see if we could actually rephrase how we uh, promote the, um, the march. And he was open to it. And again, we met at uh, Haki Matabuti's uh, office uh, at Third World Press, right? And at Third World Press, um, we discussed how we could go forward. And I want to thank those people that eventually formed, out of that meeting at Third World Press, uh, the executive committee. And just to give an idea of those members, uh, Dr. Ben Chavis, executive director uh, of the organizing committee, uh, Dr. Ron Daniels' campaign for New Tomorrow at that time. He's at IBW 21st Century now. And, of course, Minister Louis Farrakhan from Nation of Islam, myself from the organization Us, um, Ms. Mawina Kuyati from the All-African uh, People's Revolutionary Party. She was, at the beginning meeting, she was the only woman uh, there, in addition to Timoyo Karenga, uh, who was there also with me. And then Mr. Bob Law, uh, who was the Million Man March Citywide Coordinating Council, Mr. Haki Matabuti, of course, uh, uh, publisher of Third World Press, Mr. Leonard Muhammad, uh, the Nation of Islam, Dr. Mario Badele, may the good he left uh, last forever, uh, the uh, chair of the Republic of New Africa, uh, president, I'm sorry, president of New Africa, uh, president of Republic of New Africa, Reverend Dr. Uh, Frank Reed of Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church, and Reverend Willie Wilson of Union Temple Baptist Church, and Dr. Conrad War of the National Black United Front. And so those are the people that met, and we began to meet, and then we began to invite women to come. But we had divided it up the way we had it to the Man March Day of Absence. The Day of Absence was controlled by the women with men participating in the Man March, was supposed to be focused on and controlled mainly by black men for the men uh, emphasis. So we had two emphases. And the women during the day of absence, they held forums, uh, they boycotted work, right, and they had mobilization and educational processes, talk about black history, talk about the importance of the march, talking about black men standing up because the central push of this was black men standing up. We said until black men stand up, black men and women can't stand together in love and struggle, equality, complementarity, and ways the victorious liberation struggle we all need. Um, and so what we wanted to do was start out uh, together, and that was how we finally um, put it together. And at the end, on the executive uh, the organizing committee, uh, there were actually more women present at that last meeting before the march uh, than there were men. Because what we wanted to do to make sure, to reaffirm our, to our sisters, there was no exclusion. We just have to focus on men. And why do we focus on men, Carl? Because every project, every project and problem that we can think of uh, in the black community is usually linked to black men. And so we said in the a mission statement, our priority call to black men to stand up and assume this new and expanded sense of responsibility is based on the realization that the strength and resourcefulness of the black family 
and the liberation of our people required. That's some of the most... Right. And hold that thought right there, Dr. Karenga, because uh, uh, we've got to yeah. take a short break. When we come back then, I want you to go deeper and explain why the focus, as you mentioned, was on black men and, and give the reasons for that. Folks, you want to join yeah. this conversation with Dr. Milana Karenga, reach out to us, talking about the Million Man March, 800-450-7876. Those are the magic numbers. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes after the traffic and weather update right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. W-O-L, where information is power. Hi, good morning again, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour with Dr. Milana Karenga. Dr. Karenga is one of the one of the architects behind the Million Man March. Today is the 28th anniversary. If those of you who went to the march, would love to hear from you. What were you doing at this particular time? 8 o'clock in the morning, this particular time when uh, on the mall, if you went and if, how it did impact you. Dr. Karenga, before we left for the traffic and weather update, you were telling us and basically how you, the group managed to market the Million Man March in a way that it didn't offend the sisters. Can, I'll let you finish on that because this is really important. Yes, and thank you so much, Carl. And we were saying that it's a priority call for black men. It's not an exclusive one, but it's a priority call for black men to stand up and assume a new and expanded a sense of responsibility. And that was based, we said, on the realization that the strength and resourcefulness of the family and the liberation of our people require it. We can't build a strong family. We can't build a strong community if the black man is not as responsible as he should be. In fact, we said some of the most acute problems facing us and one of the most, some of the most important practices we must engage in come from black men, for example. Uh, who, and so we said the caring and responsible father in the home, right? The responsible and future-focused male youth, uh, the, the security in the community to get away from violence, internecine violence, the quality of male-female relations, and the family's capacity to avoid poverty and push the lives of its members forward all depend upon black men standing up. And therefore, in the context of a real and principled brotherhood, those of us, we say, who have stood up must challenge other brothers to stand up also. And we must remember that unless and until black men stand up, Black men and women cannot stand together and accomplish the awesome task before us. If you look at now, I talked about the, the you know, the promises if we unite. But if we don't unite, look at how they always indict a black man. You know, he's a poster child for everything that's going wrong, right? If we talk about drugs, if we talk about teenage pregnancy, if we talk about whatever, you can find you put a black man's face on it. And here in this month of remembrance and reflection, I think we are clearly confronted as black men with four major sets of problems initiated and sustained by the dominant society, but were operative in 1995 and continue. But some of them have become even more uh, problematic. And we must openly and audaciously engage and overcome these problems if we are to be the righteous resourceful and resilient men we ought to be. And these problems are first, continued indictment and demonization by the dominant society, alienation from ourselves and others meaningful to us, 
And therefore, sometimes, you know, uh, the worst of relationships come out of that, even violent relationships. Next, alienation from ourselves and other, uh, oh, I said that, uh, alienation from ourselves and other means, and others meaningful to us, then isolation through distances and incarceration and continuous elimination by the dominant society. That is say, erasure from our families, erasure from social life, erasure from the media, and erasure from life itself through continuing and expanded police violence, general systemic violence, and violence turned inward, which are interrelated. For as uh, Nana Francis would know, one of our great um, social psychologists and revolutionary thinkers noted, he said that our pressure and our oppression, um, if it is not boldly and constantly confronted, drives many to misdirect their anger and assaults toward each other. But in the midst of a real liberation movement, in the midst of unity and right for anger against our oppression and our oppression, right, then we can wage the victorious struggle we need, the liberating struggle. And so the real and relevant focus of our righteous anger becomes clear. It is against the oppressor and the system of oppression and the social pathology it generates and represents, not against others. And so our challenge as black men is to retain full consciousness of ourselves, full consciousness of our identity, our purpose, and our direction, our mission, and our direction which emerged from this. And it is important to prioritize our liberation as black men, regardless of the various other identities we choose and have. So what the dominant society has given black people, black men and women, you know, several identities. They say, well, you're not just black, you're gay. You're not just gay, you're this, lesbian. You're not just black, you're this. And they, they, they give them a million uh, identities. But the first, for me, the first and primary identity is, of course, our blackness. That's what we come together on. We can do those other identities with any other people in the world, right? We can do them with white people, brown people, red people. We can do them with any other people, but we can only be black with each other. And so that is a fundamental, for me, priority identity. And once we get that straight, and that's what happened in the second meeting, the second uh, uh, Man March um, uh, movement uh, days, when um, both straight and gay were there, male and female were there. And so there was no uh, just focus on black. It was just uh, black men. It was a stress on building the black community and all this diversity. But we can get to that. I don't want to get off the fact about black men, you know. We, 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 we must, in fact, strengthen the black man. It doesn't mean we don't strengthen the black women. We always got to say that. And we always got to argue that black men and women must be in relationship, right? Uh, always good. And whether that is intimacy, friendship, as sister and brother, co-worker, co-combatant, co-builder, but our relationship must be a moral one, right? It must be an equal one. It must be a shared responsibility. And this holds true regardless of the kind of relationship we have. So, like, before we only imagine male-female relationships in terms of building a family, but we've got to also see it in terms of building community so that there's a diversity of black men and a diversity of black women, and we have to make um, 
not only just allowance for that, we have to accept that and build on that as a strength rather than a diversion or distraction. That's 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 a strong thing to do because in our in our black consciousness, we don't want anything uh, to um, make us less strong as a black community. And so sometimes, like I said, when people um, um, stress uh, their other kinds of identities, it sometimes seems as if we can't get the kind of operational unity in diversity that we uh, talk about and we know is essential. And that was one of the major uh, principles of the Million Man March, Day of Absence. Uh, we put forth the principle uh, that I had introduced in the 60s of operational unity, unity and diversity, unity without uniformity, but unity in principle, purpose, and practice as families, communities, and as a whole people throughout the world, well, African me, community. Let me jump in and ask you this, the 30 minutes at the top there, because you stress unity and something that you've been pushing for from the 60s with us organization, even with the Panthers, even with the Nation of Islam. Were you concerned about uh, COINTELPRO? Because we know COINTELPRO is still active today, probably on a different name and more subtle. But we, we, when you guys, when you were discussing putting on this event, were you concerned that some bad actors or uh, uh, might try to cause some problems there? McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Hey, Bo, appreciate what you said, if I'm saying correctly. We have to constantly be vigilant. See, that's why the European doesn't want us to stay woke, you know? And sometimes people be claiming they're woke, but they're just saying it, but they haven't woke up because they don't stand up and act in the way that we talked about in the 60s. To be conscious and conscious was not only to think a certain way and to feel a certain way, but also to act a certain way. So, And we said black is not just color, it's also culture and consciousness. And that consciousness was both a sensibility, I mean, it was a sensibility, a thought, and a practice. That's that's what we we're talking about. And so, yes, the COINTELPRO put together uh, a long time ago, but actually became stronger in the 60s with Cuba asking uh, 40-some field officers to give him hard-hitting ideas about how to suppress the black movement. And if you look at the COINTELPRO program, uh, uh, project in writing, Hoover said that his greatest fear was not one organization, and sometimes people try to say it was just one organization. Well, it wasn't one organization. He said, our greatest fear is black unity, and therefore we must do all we can to keep them disrupted and to keep them isolated from each other and from their community. In fact, he talked about how he wanted to make people suspected even in their own organization. So he put out a lot of things, making everybody a part of him. Say, oh, that's a snitch, that's a 
operative. That's somebody undercover working for us. So he spread that. And then like with us in the Panthers, he shot at us, at us and said it was the Panthers, shot at the Panthers and said it was us. And then fomented what was actually a healthy ideological struggle and involved cooperation in the early days. We worked together. Turned out to be a shootout at UCLA that actually undermined the movement in ways that it hasn't recovered from now. Because still the COINTELPRO is operative that keeps people from getting beyond that and seeing a larger struggle involved, right? And realizing the police and also people in the left, white people in the leftist movement who were anti-black nationalism, right? They might embrace it and call it revolutionary and call us culture nationalists, but we were actually revolutionaries too, revolutionary culture nationalists. But they fomented that false distinction between revolutionary and culture nationalism when both of us claimed to be revolutionary. And both the, us and the Panthers was on every FBI list, every uh, intelligence uh, organization list that the other one was on. We were on every list the Panthers was on, and they were on every list we were on. Ours lasted longer. If you look at the record, ours lasted into the 70s, late 70s, whereas uh, theirs were uh, uh, quicker. Uh, I think theirs last less. But, you know, the the point is that, and I want to just pay homage to Chairman Henry Wallace, uh, the original Black Panther Party in uh, San Diego, for coming together with us and signing an agreement of reconciliation to get behind that and hope it was a model for all the other people that we talked about, you know, because we need to somehow break this chain of mutual suspicion and attack and all that. And we try not to do that. If you notice the literature, uh, our organization, us, never publicly engaged in an argument with the Panthers, although they uh, were vicious on us and still some of those other ones are still into that, but character assassination and all that. But, we have to get beyond that. We have to heal the wounds, and we have to begin to build the kind of community and world we all want and deserve to live in. And so in October last year, in the same month of, of the media man, Mark David Epson, we met uh, and had discussions, but we had done it over the years, and we decided let's sign a reconciliation agreement between the organization, us, and the San Diego Original Black Panther Party. Right. And hold that thought right there, Dr. Crane. We've got to take a, a short break here, but I want you to expound on that as well. Because some people, like you said, still have some residual effects of what the, what the COINTEL program did to keep us apart. And some people yeah. have not really, you know, figured that out yet. They're still being played and they still blame people for the different incidents that took place, not knowing that J. Edgar Hoover was behind the whole thing. But we've got to take a short break here. We're 26 minutes away from the top of the hour. Folks, you want to join this conversation? We're actually discussing the Million Man March, but we've got to get over this point first. Though, reach out to us and we'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB in the DMV. We're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. Or information is power. 
And good morning again, family. 19 minutes away from the top of the hour. Thanks for rolling with us this morning. I guess it's Dr. Malana Karenga. Some of you know him from Kwanzaa, but he was part of the, the group that put together the Million Man March, and today's the 28th anniversary of that march. We'll get back to a moment. Let me just remind you, coming up in the next few days, you're going to hear from historian Dr. Walter Williams, also Morgan State University professor Dr. Ray Wimbush will be here, metaphysician Dr. B, and Griot Baba Lumumba all going to join us. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, before we left uh, for the news and traffic update, Dr. Crang, I was asking you about concern about Ajahn Provocateurs because they know that all of these black men are going to be on the mall 28 years today, and it just takes one. Start a fight or do something. We've seen that happen. How did you get beyond that? Did you plan, and you were explaining to us now that uh, you were aware of, of, of uh, COINTELPRO, the system of COINTELPRO that used to, that kept the Panthers, us, the Nation of Islam, all groups were fighting against each other, but you said there was some reconciliation with, with the Black Panthers in San Diego. I'll let you expound on that. Right. And I want to just say that all the major groups of the movement were affected and suppressed in some way by the COINTELPRO. And some of them didn't survive, but we not only survive, we continue to develop in spite of that, you know, so we were victims of it. Uh, they, as, as, especially with my organization and other organizations, they put us in captivity on trumped-up charges, myself included. They drove us in exile. Some of our people still out of the country. And then they also drove us underground, but we came back stronger, right? And one of the things that I, I mentioned to you and I want to get back to this because one of the things that I think the Million Man March helped us do is set the uh, tone for an increase reaching out to brothers, right, and trying to, you know, live better lives and have better relationship with our own brothers. And so uh, one of the things that happened with us here in the, in the West Coast with L.A. and, and San Diego is that um, the um, leadership of the San Diego original Black Panther Party, uh, especially in the person of uh, Chairman uh, Henry Wallace, uh, reached out, and I reached out, and we had conversations over the years. And finally, uh, in October the 22nd, we signed and made a public, uh, uh, you know, uh, announcement of our having signed a reconciliation, developed and signed a reconciliation agreement uh, that uh, uh, said that we were certainly deeply concerned about the initial and continuing toll of the conflict provoked by the FBI and other forces. The, the, the toll it has taken on our members, our organization, the community, and the Black Liberation Movement. And we were mindful of the compelling desire and need of our people for reconciliation and a principle and practice unity so that the critical cooperative work and struggle can be pursued in the interest of our people. And we all call ourselves servants of our people. And so what we want to do in signing this is recommit ourselves to the ongoing struggle for liberation for the good of our people and the well-being of the world and all in it, as we said. And so what we did, we laid out some principles that we agreed on, you know, and that we hope would be a model for other people rebuilding and beginning to uh, build that black united front, that kind of spirit uh, we ex- exhibited in the Million Man March uh, Day of Absence. And so we agreed to the following principle. One, to practice mutual respect for each other and for each other's commitment and contribution 
in service and struggle for our people and the Black Liberation Movement. Number two, to practice operational unity, unity and diversity, constantly seeking common ground while recognizing our different but related position, views, and interests in our shared commitment. Two, and love of our people. Three, we commit ourselves to refrain from verbal and physical threats or use of force directly or indirectly against each other and commit to settling disputes and conflict by mutually respectful and peaceful means. Fourth, we agree to refuse to participate in or be receptive to character assassination, which is really hard in our community, to not be receptive to or to participate in character assassination, hating on, let me just read this the way it is, to, to refuse to participate in or be receptive to character assassination, hating on, derogatory and untruthful statements, rumor-mongering, and misrepresentation of each other, and to encourage principal dialogue and discussion around issues of difference as well as issues of common ground. Fifth, we agreed to expose and resist the continuing clearly stated plans and actions of the COINTELPRO forces to discredit. That's what they said they would do. Discredit, divide, disrupt, and neutralize us, our people, and the movement. And we also agreed to promote the process and practice of repair and reconciliation and building a principled unity and struggle vital to building community and waging a victorious struggle. And finally, we agreed to work together on projects of mutual interest and common ground in the interests of African human good and the well-being of the world. And so, again, we signed this and made a public uh, declaration of this uh, meeting in San Diego on the 22nd of October, 2022. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. So that was very important. And I, I wanted to just get back to the um, uh, the Million Man March Day of Absent because it was such a major event, right? I mean, a million plus black men coming, and we took the position in the Million Man March uh, mission statement that I just wanted to read some of it. We, the black men and women, the organizations and persons participating in this historic Million Man March and Day of Absent, held in D.C. on October 16, 1995, on the eve of the 21st century and supported by parallel activities in cities and towns throughout the country. That's a day of absence. We are conscious of the critical juncture of history in which we live and the challenges posed about. We're concerned about increasing racism and continuing commitment to white supremacy in this country, deteriorating social conditions, degradation of the environment, and impact these of these on our community, the largest side, society in the world, committed to the ongoing struggle for a free and empowered community, a just society, and a better uh, world, recognizing that the country and government have made a dangerous and regressive turn to the right and are producing policies with negative impact on people of color, the poor, and the vulnerable, realizing that every man and woman of our community have both the right and responsibility to resist evil and contribute to meaningful, contribute meaningfully to the creation of a just and good society. We also reaffirm the best of our values, our social justice tradition, which require respect for the dignity and rights of the human person, economic justice, meaningful political participation, shared power, cultural integrity, mutual respect for all peoples, and uncompromising resistance to social forces and structures which deny or limit these. And therefore, we declare our 
the commitment to assume a new and expanded responsibility in the struggle to build and sustain a free and empowered community, a just and better world, a just society and better world. And we are aware that we make this commitment in an era in which this is needed as never before and in which we cannot morally do otherwise. And in doing this, we self-consciously emphasize the priority need of black men to stand up and assume this new and expanding responsibility without denying or minimizing the equal right and role and responsibility of black women in the life and struggle of our people. I mean, this is a major public policy statement. They tried to, you know, undermine and say, oh, it wasn't this and that, or it was just male-oriented. But you can see the scope of this. And I give credit to all the people on the committee and this um, uh, uh, people representing the 318 uh, local organizing committee. And so the statement reflects the common ground and principle and the operational unity and practice forged over a long period of various and expansive changes over a year. It represents our consciousness of the critical juncture of history at which we live and the challenges it poses for us. Our profound concern for increasing racism, deteriorating social and environmental conditions, and the urgent need for transformative and progressive leadership. And that was so important. I think it was important also that we reaffirm the best of our social justice tradition, the values of our social justice tradition, our liberation struggle, you know, that required respect for the dignity and rights of the human person, economic justice, meaningful political participation, shared power, culture integrity, mutual respect for all peoples, and an uncompromising resistance to social forces and structures which deny or limit these. But that's what we were about, and I'll, I'll give you some more of it as we go on, but I'm going to stop and see if you have some uh, response to that. Right. No, I have some folks who got some response at nine away from the top of the hour. First up is Tyrone calling from Baltimore. He's on line one. Good morning, Tyrone. Yes, good morning. Um, Here on with Dr. Karenga. Yeah, good morning, Dr. Karenga. Thank you for all you do. Good morning. You have a plan and you want to work for people. Um, I would like uh, to caution people, too, that one of the main things we forget about, I think we always forget, is the young people. Because of things like mass incarceration, we have to figure out ways to get them to be able to take advantage of things like build back better, as the as the previous the previous guest was saying. Um, that way, they won't have to participate in the underground economy, which leads to a lot of the violence you see on the street. So we've got to meet these kids where they are uh, when they get when they get out of jail, whatever. Because when they get out of jail, think about it, you got a criminal record, you don't have a college degree. You, one aspect of being a man is being able to provide for your family. And uh, I was able to raise my kids successfully mainly because, mainly because I had a job and training that allowed me to provide a decent living for them. That was key. And it, and it gave me respect of, of, you know, my lady and everything else, the fact that I could provide those assets. So I don't want us to forget about economics when we're doing this thing. And Dr. King, uh, uh, Rosa, Rosa, um, I mean, Dr. King's wife, Clarence uh, Scott King, said that's the reason they killed our Martin is because he started concentrating on economics. So we can't forget the economics piece. We've got to make our kids viable and meet them where they are. I mean, it could be the trade. A lot of these cities like Baltimore, we have vacant housing. We can train them to be plumbers, electricians, and the like. And we should be able to address them as soon as they get out of jail. Before they get out of jail, as part of reparations, they should have a job and a trade 
and they should have that job when they what before they get out of jail. Have that job before they get out of jail. Not put them on the street for a criminal record, tell them looking for a job and no, and no skill. And that's that's one thing right. I forget. Thank you. All right, and Tyrone, we got to take a break, and I'll let Dr. Karenga respond to what you just said. A couple of things you said I know he wants to respond to. Folks, you two can join this conversation with Dr. Karenga on this anniversary of the, the Million Man March, the 28th anniversary. If you went to the march, too, we'd love to hear from you how it changed you. Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. Hey, good morning again, family. Many minute after the top of the hour. Thanks for rolling with us this morning. Another interesting morning. Our guest is Dr. Milana Karenga. Discussing, this is the anniversary, by the way, the 20th anniversary of the Million Man March, the largest historic gathering of black men in Washington, D.C., and Dr. Karenga was part of that. Before we left, we were speaking with Tyrone in Baltimore, and we talked about some of the principles from the Million Man March for men and families, and especially for young men. So, Dr. Karenga, I'll let you respond to some of the things that Tyrone talked about. Yeah, bro. Appreciate what you've said, and as if I understand correctly, Carl, what Tyrone said, I think it's very important for us to talk about all youth and not just talk about problematic youth, so that when we talk about dealing with our, our children or our young people, that we start from the position we're going to cherish and challenge them at the same time. We're going to cherish all of them. But we're going to challenge them to excellence, and we're going to reward and reaffirm those that are doing right, and then we're going to challenge those who are doing wrong uh, to correct their behavior. So sometimes when we talk about black youth, we say we got to go where they are. We think all of them are in the street. So that leaves all, all the people that are in school, that are going to college, that have got a job, that are doing well, Right. So they get left off, and the model becomes just like gangster rap, move from political conscious rap to gangster rap, and, and you get this problem where most of the time we're singing and clapping uh, to self-degradation, right, and the name-calling and, and things that are just negative instead of cultivating a culture that requires us to talk about reaffirming each other and our blackness and our dignity and the fullness of our humanity as African people. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is we don't, what we need to do also is have a comprehensive program for our young people. And that means, first of all, linking them to family, right? Because a lot of times people try to have programs and lift black people out of their family. And then their family doesn't give them the support that they need. You know, the European used to do that all the time. I was a social worker. And the white man used to pay the sister to keep the brother out of the house, right? And so what we have then is a, a slow deterioration of the two-parent family. And everyone knows that not only for the economics of it, but for the moral and educational and support value of it, a two-person fam two family is stronger, right? And so I think it's very important for us to understand that. And also we have to strengthen and expand the reentry programs that Tyrone was talking about, see? So people prepare themselves in captivity, but then they come out, they need an entry program that not only supports them, 
in what they're trying to do, but help orient and reorient their values because we always argue that even if you had a job, you don't have a value, you won't go to it. And if you go to it, you won't do the good job and you get fired. You do, you're always looking for something else that's irrational, right? But you're motivated by it because America seduces people into thinking about blame instead of black. They're thinking about having money instead of morality. They just, I mean, they just, because that's the way they are. And if they can get you doing that, they don't have to explain themselves. They'll say, this is human nature. They'll call their criminal behavior, especially the crime against us and against humanity, they'll call that normal and say, if you were in the same position, you would do it. But what we've got to do is create another vision of human possibility. We've got to imagine a new world, a new human should do that. Like uh, Nana Francis Fanon said, we have to reconsider the question of humankind. We have to strive to start a new history of humankind and new men and women to mm, make that history and to sustain the good life we all dream of and deserve, right? We need a good life. And that's a whole nother thing. We can't put so much emphasis on money that money becomes a measure of all things and end up just fitting into a consumerist society. Because we're not talking about building businesses and structures, right? We're talking oh, uh, black cooperatives. We're talking about just having money for yourself. And you know we need that. Who, who would say that? It's just like when I talk to my brother and sister about reparations, right? Reparations has to be more than looking for a check. It has to repair, renew, and remake ourselves in the process and practice of repairing, renewing, and remaking the whole world, restructuring the society that is suppressing and oppressing us, and building the basis for a new way to relate and act and love and build as African people, right, and human beings. So that's that's I don't I don't want us to simplify the struggle here. It's a comprehensive one, and that's why we were say we are revolutionary culture nationally because we see culture as everything. Culture is a fundamental way we are Africans in the world, and we believe that each culture and people is a unique and equally valid and valuable way of being human in the world. And that culture is the ground for identity, our purpose, and our direction. And we've got to have the best of that culture, ancient and modern, continental and diaspora, and we've got to live it. In practice, every day, we say all the time, we are American by habit and African by choice. And we've got to choose to be African. We've got to choose to be excellent. African means excellent. If Africa don't mean excellent, what does it mean? Amen. Seven after the top there on this uh, 20th anniversary of the Mail and Man March. One of the architects of the march is with us, Dr. Malana Karenga. Let's go to line two. Bob in Buffalo has a question for you. Good morning, Bob. You're on with Dr. Karenga. Is Bob there in line two? Not hearing Bob. Yeah, I'm not hearing Bob. So let's 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 move on then. Let's go to line four. Supreme's calling from Baltimore. Good morning, Supreme. Hey, Pete. Uh, how y'all doing? Um, it's important that uh, I'm glad you mentioned culture, Dr. Karenga, because the culture is the quality of a person or society that arises from concern for which 
for what that is regarded as excellence in the art, letters, manner, scholarly pursuits, etc. And you summed it up when you said what we need to do as a people. Is if, if if we have culture, all of the things that we talk about, money, economics, uh, family, generational wealth, all of that's going to come. But if we don't have an understanding of what it means to have culture, meaning what it means to be excellent, and we don't strive to that each and every day and each and every way, then it's going to be hard for us to achieve any type of uh supreme or superiority in ourselves because we don't have any understanding of how important culture is to man's existence. And supreme, do us a favor. Supreme, put in a, a question for him so Dr. Karanka can respond. Um, I guess how, how do we get our people to understand the importance of culture? and what it means, what the true meaning of it is. Thank you for mm-hmm. asking me that call. Peace. All right. Thanks, Supreme. So, Sanchez, uh, thanks to you uh, for asking the question, and thanks to you, uh, call for asking to ask the question. Uh, first of all, we have to have a clear de- definition of culture before we teach it, right? And so what I want to do is define it. I know it's a heavy uh, definition in the multidimensional, but that's the way it is. Culture. It's a totality of sensibilities, thought, and practice by which a people creates itself, celebrates, sustains, and develops itself, and introduces itself to history and humanity. So our culture is the fundamental way we create ourselves, develop ourselves, sustain ourselves, and introduce ourselves to history and humanity. So we bring ourselves into being by what we feel and think and do, right? So we build culture as we feel, as we think, as we do. And we do that on at least seven basic levels, right? Culture is the areas, fundamental areas of culture are history, you know. Uh, Then uh, religion or um, spirituality and ethics, if you want to give a different uh, definition to religion. Third, Social organization, economic organization, four, five, uh, political organization, six, creative production, which is your art, music, literature, and other creative efforts. And then finally, your ethos, the collective psychology you achieve, the self-understanding and self-definition you achieve as a result of activities in those other areas. For example, three of our fundamental genesis is Fathers and mothers of human civilization, of humanity, father and mother of humanity and human civilization, sons and daughters of the Holocaust of enslavement, authors and heirs of our reaffirmation of our Africanness and our liberation of resistant tradition in the 60s. So those things asked us, who are we? And then what are we to do as a result of that? And then how we're going to do it. So culture gives us three things, identity, purpose, and direction. And it's struggling on those areas. So we have to ask, do we understand our history, how we came into being? History is a struggle and record of a people in the process of shaping their world in their own image and interest. How did we do that? How did we uh, become the first people to stand up and speak the first human truth and introduce some of the basic disciplines of human knowledge in the Nile Valley? How did we not only survive 
but dared to develop and to get out of the Holocaust of enslavement that outlawed our reading and writing and then develop a literature, a world-class literature second to none. How do we escape the constant dehumanization and degradation, domination, deprivation that the Europeans put on us and remain resilient and resourceful and soulful? How do we, as a people, uh, act out uh, uh, not a Howard Thurman uh, uh, call to us to be storm riders, to ride the storm and remain intact. Or Nina Gwen Brooks challenged to us to conduct our blooming in the noise and whip of the whirlwind. Or Nina Nanan Barrow's telling us we must specialize in the holy impossible. See, that's part of our culture, and we must bring forth the best of our culture. Not all of it, because some of it has to be, you know, uh, put to the side. We in the organization, us, say that we are motivated by two things, tradition and reason, right? In terms of our tradition of sensibility, thought, and practice, but then our rational evaluation of it, bringing our best moral reasoning and ask, is this relevant? It's like how we got out of sexism and male chauvinism, male supremacy. We had to reason about that and say this does not represent the best of what it means to be African. How do we then move to talk about the environment when we didn't discuss it, even though it was the environment we were in that was shaping us, the physical environment as well as the social environment? That's the reason we take our tradition. We always start from our tradition, and then we ask ourselves, at any given moment, is this the best of what it means to be African human in the fullest sense? That's how we have to practice our culture. And we have to do four things, of course. We have to have... uh, have And hold those four things right there, Dr. Grant. We've got to take a quick break. I'll let you come back and explain the four things we have to do to keep our culture going. Folks, you want to join this conversation on this, the 20th anniversary of the Million Man March. One of the architects of the the march is here. He wrote the manifesto. He was the last person to speak before Minister Farrakhan. That would be Dr. Milana Karenga. We'll take your phone calls for him at 14 after the top. They are in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV. We're on FM 95.9 and AM 4. 1450 WOL, where information is power. 20 minutes after the top of the hour on this, the 28th anniversary of the Million Man March. Uh, our guest is Dr. Malana Karenga. Many of you know him for his work with Kwanzaa, but it's also an integral part of putting the march on with Minister Farrakhan. And before we left, we had, we had a question from uh, Brother Supreme, who talked about culture, and, and Dr. Karenga is about to tell us the four elements involved in culture. So, Dr. Karenga, I'm going to let you finish your thought. So I was saying, thanks so much, Carl. I was saying that, you know, I first had to find culture, you know, I talked about it, and then he was saying, how do we teach him? And I was saying that there's at least four areas we can act in, and the first is, of course, education. But prior to that, I said, we must know ourselves and agree on a working definition of culture. And then the first thing we do is educate, right? Uh, we have to, in fact, <clears throat> educate our people, and we educate them from, this is political education and culture education, right? And so we, when we say in our Kawita school, the Limbiko Tembo School of African American Culture, we say we have these aims, right? Giving uh, our students knowledge of the world, knowledge of themselves in the world, knowledge of how to succeed and be successful and contribute in the world, and finally, knowledge of how to direct our lives toward good 
and expansive ends. So we want to know the world. We want to know ourselves in the world. We want to know how to mm, um, be competent and succeed and contribute in the world. And we want to know and need to know how to ground ourselves or in ourselves and direct our life toward good and expansive end. Second, mobilize. We have to create processes where people are constantly, actively learning to practice, right? We have to be uh, uh, constantly active. There is no substitute, I've said before, I repeat, there is no substitute for an aware, an aware, organized and engaged people, constantly involved in a multiplicity of activities to define, defend, and advance of the interest. And then we have to organize. Mobilization is one thing, like people mobilize in the summer after George Floyd's public execution, right? But where are they now? See, they dissipate because we have to put them in structures, right? People have to organize. They have to be organizations and institutions that house our aspirations, preserve our achievements, and advance our interests in struggle. And then finally, we have to confront. We have to confront ourselves and society. We have to resist within and without, right? We have to resist evil and injustice. We have to resist the society's tendency to shape us in its own image and interest, to make us caucuses of ourselves and black reflections or dark, I shouldn't say black, dark reflections of whiteness, right? And we don't want to do that, right? That suppresses our self-determination, undermines our soulfulness and creativity and resourcefulness, right? As I said earlier, we are American by habit and African by choice, and we have to choose and struggle to maintain that choice every day. It's not enough to say I'm black. You're not just black. You're black after you hmm, come back at night and take inventory of how society has eroded or not eroded your conception of yourself, your best conception of yourself, not a small individualistic conception, but your conception in the midst of the excellence of your culture, the best of what it means to be African and human in the fullest sense. And one of the things I wanted to say, too, is that, you know, we have to always think about this struggle, right, about not isolating ourselves in in society, but building a base from which we go out and advance our interests. And that's why in the Million Man March uh, mission statement, we made demands uh, on public policy. And we called for, for example, we called for reparations in the fullest sense of the concept, right? Not just money, but, you know, like we have to have public dialogue, we have to have public recognition um, and uh, compensation. Um, and, uh, of course, discontinuation of these oppressive practices, we said. Now, I have even a, a larger one for our organization, but that was the one we had at that time. And, of course, this means a radical reconstruction of society, we said. We also call for a halt to criminalizing our people and then doing hard-won gains such as affirmative action and voting rights. This is in 95, and look how relevant this is even now, right? You know, the constant attempt to criminalize us and to undo hard-won gains, such as affirmative action and voting rights. We called also to halt the privatization of public wealth and space, taking libraries and schools and turning them to 
into profit-making things, right? Instead of doing public um, uh, service and, and contributing to the public good. And we ask for them and demand to spend money on education, not imprisonment, and to protect and preserve the environment. We also call for universal full and affordable health care, affordable housing, a big issue now, right? The passing of the Kanye's reparation bill, H.R. 40, an economic bill of rights and plans to rebuild devastated urban areas. In that, in, that dis, in that mission statement, we called also, and remember it's a collective understanding, okay? We called on our people to continue to struggle against police abuse and violence, government suppression, violations of civil and human rights, and the industrialization of prisons, right? And we call for support of the freedom of political prisoners, prisoners' rights, and uh, the efforts of prisons of self-transformation in returning to society that we talked about earlier. Moreover, we reaffirmed our standing in the Pan-African solidarity and struggle with African peoples everywhere and with Native peoples and other peoples of color in their just and liberation struggles, their just liber- and, 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 and vital liberation struggles. And we called on corporations to respect the rights and dignity of the working people, right, to reinvest profits back into the black community that they take from it and to stop plundering, polluting, and depleting the environment. In addition, we called on, on the community to practice an active, aware, and independent politics, right, to rebuild and expand its economic base, and above all, to rebuild and struggle and to strengthen the black family and community, to struggle to reduce and end poverty, increase employment, achieve culturally grounded quality education, and enhance our institutional and organizational capacity to what? to define, defend, and advance our interests as a people. And we also place strong emphasis on supporting and challenging our faith communities, right, uh, to, to do more, you know, to put forth the best of our values and practices as a moral and social vanguard in this country and the world. I mean, there's something going on in the world now. Black people should stand up for in support of the Palestinian people. I would argue that, right? I don't hear from my faith leaders in a way, but then, Sometimes uh, they, they fired the three Muslim anchors because they defended the right of the Palestinians to be free. We must measure ourselves, as we always said, you know, by how we treat the most vulnerable, how we stand up, right? And as Dr. King has said in his argument about um, putting Vietnam in what he called the field of our moral vision, but we have to be the voice for the voiceless. But it's early in our history, all the way back to ancient Egypt in the Husea. It says we are morally obligated to bear witness to truth and to set the scales of justice in the proper place among those who have no voice. The voiceless, the disempowered, the dispossessed, the degraded, the dominated, right? The vulnerable, right? Who cannot defend themselves, right? We have to speak up from that. If we don't do that, how do we know who we are? All I'm talking about, Carl, and, and, and audience, is that's how we know ourselves. That's how we know we're practicing the best of our culture. You know, we have to do things in the world. We have to bring good in the world. In fact, the ancient sacred text, the Odu Ifa, says that we are divinely chosen to bring good into the world and not let no good, any good be lost. And that this is the fundamental mission and meaning of human life. Odu Ifa, right? And so also we talk 
and said, and I still believe this is it was, this is one of the most important value systems that is embraced by black people as African all over the world on every continent in the world, and that is in Guzo Saba, the seven principle that I developed in the first and then developed Kwanzaa to, in fact, spread these principles. And these principles that called the Nguzo Saba, the seven principles are first in Swahili and then in English, Umoja Unity, Kujichagalia, self-determination, Ujima, collective working responsibility, Ujamaa, cooperative economics, Mia, purpose, Kaumba, creativity, and Imani, faith. And so I think it's so important for us to practice our culture, to every day know we have to reaffirm our Africanness, our blackness, our soulfulness, our resourcefulness, our re- resilience, and especially our sacredness, bearers of dignity and divinity, because it is we who gave the world those fundamental concepts, indispensable to any notion of what it means to be human and to have human rights. And those two concepts were that we're in the image of the divine, and that we are bearers of dignity and inherent worthiness, right? We're born with an inherent worthiness that has three basic characteristics. It's transcendent of all social and biological categories like race and class and gender, sexuality, age, ability, nationality, ethnicity, religion, etc. Second, it's equal in all. No hierarchies, right? Everybody is fully human, right? Everybody has full dignity. And finally, it's inalienable. Nobody can take it from us, and we can't even give it away. So we who have developed these concepts, as expressed in the sacred text of Husea, and who understand the sacred text of Ifai that says we're all chosen, and we're chosen not over and against anyone, not to claim superiority, but we're chosen to do one thing, to bring good into the world and not let any good be lost. That's a beautiful contribution to make to human moral vocabulary and to do it at such an early age. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. All right, folks, you just joined us at 28 away from the top. Yeah, we've got a break coming up, but I guess he's Dr. Milana Karenga. Dr. Karenga wrote the manifesto for the Million Man March. Today is the 28th anniversary of the Million Man March. Where were you 28 years ago? How did it affect you? Because he's giving us some background, how it all came about, and some of the questions that you mentioned, how it all ties into the Million Man March. What are your thoughts? 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here at 26 six away from the top of the hour in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB in the DMV we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL where information is power 
Uh, good morning again, family. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour. Thanks for rolling with us on Morning Light. Interesting morning on this, the 28th anniversary of the Million Man March. One of the organizers of Rivers, Dr. Milana Karenga. Many of you know him from Kwanzaa, but he actually wrote the manifesto for the march, and he was the last person to speak before Mr. Farrakhan closed it out. We'll get back to him in a moment because a bunch of folks who want to have questions for you, Dr. Karenga. But coming up later this week, you're going to hear from historian Dr. Walter Williams, Morgan State University professor Dr. Ray Wimbush, metaphysician Dr. B, and also Grio Baba Lumumba. So make sure your radio's locked in tight right here on 1010 WLB in Baltimore. Also on the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, let's take these calls for you. Let's go to line four. Sister Chimbuku who's calling from L.A. Has a question for you, Dr. Karenga. Good morning, Sister Chimbuku. And thank you, Dr. Karenga, for your 58 years of work and struggle on behalf of our people. I wanted to ask Dr. Kring if you could talk a little bit more about the day of absence, which I was a part of uh, 28 years ago. We drove around, black women drove around the community. We went to barbershops, nail shops, beauty shops, had our bullhorns, and let the community know that we're going to have a major teaching at various community organizations because we're going to be absent from their world, the white world. We're going to be present in the black world. So don't go to school. Don't go to your job. Come on into the community and have a community teaching. I want to ask you to talk a little bit more about the importance of that, which I think from what you were saying, that would be a mobilizing effort that went around the city and that black women led. So if you could talk a little bit more about the day of absence. Thanks so much. And thank you because you played a major role here in Los Angeles on that. And as a member of the organization, I said, actually vice chair, as well as, um, Associate Director of the African-American Culture Center, uh, you did a, a magnificent job uh, with the other women of us in the African-American uh, Culture Center. And one of the things we wanted to do, and this was duplicated uh, not only in Los Angeles, but with 318 local organizing communities throughout the country. And so the women, you know, who did not go, uh, did not want to go because they could go, and, we, and that was the whole uh, meeting uh, process that we put together at Third World Press, uh, they wanted to organize the community because a lot of people weren't going. We wanted to get a million, but, you know, we got 30, 40 million by then, right? And so the question is, what do we, those who are not going, how do they relate to it, reinforce the uh, movement, reinforce brothers, you know, without feeling they're left behind, but being doing work in different spaces. But it's all linked because it's strengthening the black family and the black community. And that's the key. So the women's organizations did the mobilization and education, right? So the forums, the teach-ins, these are education forums about what it means to be African, what it means to be politically involved, what it means to build family and community, all those things that we needed to talk about, you know, that related to black men and women standing together and waging the victorious struggle we need to be ourselves and to free ourselves and to create a whole new uh, future, uh, as we say, uh, in the most ethical, effective, and expansive way. So those were very important uh, times and just glorious times for us uh, as black people. And one of the beautiful things about this is how it shows the importance of the movement and how uh, black people were able to come together uh, with that kind of diversity 
And what, when I talked about um, some of the achievements of the Million Man March, a day of absence, it was the first point was we had brought together in operational unity the largest and most diverse mass action in our history as a people. Right? I mean, this was something very important. And the second thing is that women played a central role in it. It was a reaffirmation of the centrality of male-female relations, not only to the movement, but the community as a whole. It was stressing the centrality of partnership and equality as a key concern in both the conception and crafting of the Million Man March, A Day of Absence. And women were in the very, in every capacity, from the com- executive committee of the uh, uh, Million Man March, right? Uh, and then also uh, to leading the uh, day of absence. So, uh, as I said, this is the division of responsibility, but the unity of people and purpose. And see, another thing is the level of organization. Women played a major role in that. Achievement of the Me Man March Day of Absence was uh, the level and quality of the organization that was achieved to plan and carry out this project. Gives us diverse participants and the, it, 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 given the diversity of its size, right, and the number of participants in it. And this becomes clear in putting together the program for the day of absence and balancing the collective interest of the Million Man March and day of absence. You know, that was just a beautiful achievement. And also the transformation of former critics into allies and participants because there were women in the movement at the end that had criticized us and had said that, you know, Minna Farrakhan was doing this and that, and he wasn't doing it. But, you know, the Muslims took a hard line on, you know, the reason of, of, of roles for men and women. But they were flexible because Minister Farrakhan, who had this excellent idea, wanted it to succeed. And he thought that that was good because what we were doing is bringing men and women together in a cooperative project with each stressing the focus that they wished and, and wanted to be in. And so, uh, and it reminds me of a verse in the Husea, the sacred text of uh, people of ancient Egypt, that said, I kept my mouth free from attacking those who attacked me, and my patient work turned my friends and my foes into friends and my enemies into allies. I think it also was a practice of self-determination, and it was conceived by black people, black men and women, planned it, financed it, organized it, and made it successful as a whole. Without the women, it wouldn't have been as successful, right? And you can't see things as successful if men and women don't do it together in some final way. They don't have to be in the same space, right? And they don't have to do the same thing, but it has to be related, right? And again, the NOI, the Nation of Islam, was a key organization, and it showed a flexibility that sometimes people uh, wouldn't uh, think of it uh, showing. And also I think it lays um, the, the, the value of it was it prefigured the kind of family and community relationships we want and need to have. Uh, it, was, it, it is a community and project made up of men and women in equal partnership and shared responsibility to build an ethically grounded and empowered community, a just and good society, and a good and sustainable world. And in the project, this project was respectful of the diversity, 
it was self-determined and it was self-consciously put together, not only for the health and wholeness of African people, but also we began, as the mission statement said, to think about the well-being of the world in the social and natural sense. And finally, I think the achievement of the Million Man March Day of Absence was its offering a model of success and possibility with men and women working together for a common cause, the liberation of our people, the struggle to be ourselves and to free ourselves. And it was a model of leadership from the men and women's point of view, from leadership, organization, diversity, self-determination, operational unity, quality, relationships between male and female, and all our diversity. Because if you look at it, all the different kinds of people were there. And so I think thanks for raising that question, and thanks for listening to a, a kind of long answer, but it's important. Mm-hmm. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. All right, 12 away from the top here. Let's keep rolling. On line five, Alan's waiting for us. Alan's in Baltimore. Alan, your question for Dr. Karenga. Oh, can you hear me? Sure. Hello? Yeah, yes. Dr. Karenga. The Million Man yes. March, I was uh, counting. Let me ask you this. When you said uh, black women needed a safety net, glad the white guy said, here's a check, analyze your uh, marriage. A lot of guys be whooping on women that you still have choice. You can stay on welfare for generations to come, but if you get your safety net, go to Pell Grant, educate yourself. Yeah, I'm glad that Linda Bang Johnson threw women a safety net because we're not giving reparations. And a lot of guys whoop up on women because of the problem we are in. So it's a safety net. It's like a life jacket. You can stay in the ocean and sink, or you can arise and be a college-educated man like you or a college-educated woman like a lot of our sisters, and hooray to Vice President Kamala Harris because she's not on welfare. Thank you, now. Thank you. Yeah, go. Appreciate what you said, if I understand correctly. Let's not be harsh on welfare. You know that all the public wealth and space of this country belongs to us. It's public wealth. It's not white people's wealth. It's not the rich oh, yeah. people's wealth. Oh, yeah. It's public well. Hold on a second, Dr. Karenga. Uh, uh, Kevin, can you hang up on, on line five? Getting some crosstalk there. Go ahead, Dr. Karenga. Jabo, so I don't want us to put down welfare. I have organized with uh, Johnny Tillman, uh, Nana Janet Tillman, made the good she left and the joy she brought last forever. When she started here to organize the National Welfare Rights Organization, 
our organization was right there helping her to do that. And we gave her an honor before she passed, and she praised us for the work that we had done uh, with her uh, and for welfare people. And as I said, I was a social worker. So I know that a lot of people might think that is just something people pimp and do all that with. You know, you're going to always have people do wrong. There's just people doing wrong in the church, in the mosque, all the religious institutions, all the houses. That's no reason not to have churches and mosques and, and houses and families, right? Because people do wrong. That's another fact. We need them to guard against all these tricks and, and those people affected and letting the oppressor be their teacher. So don't, I don't want us to do that. And I do want us to challenge people to be self-determining and to do as much as they can for themselves, not to become dependent on that, but those that are dependent because they don't have any other means. They have a right to that wealth. The corporations get welfare. They don't call it that, right? They call that incentives to produce and to stay alive. It's like Obama said about the banks. They're too big to fail, so here's some money, right? They would never give us that money. They couldn't even... They couldn't even talk about a reparations bill, right? I mean, just think about that. So don't, don't, don't condemn our people for getting that meager part of public wealth that we created. We created. They owe us more than they can pay us, right? So, yes, I think black people need uh, personal initiative. I think they need to make a way for themselves. But for those people who can't, let's go on and let them have that and support them in that. But that's not our model solely. We are diverse people with diverse conditions and diverse capacities, and we've got to recognize that. And we unite around operational unity, unity in diversity, unity without conformity, unity in principle, purpose, and practice, right? And it's it's always the good we do and the good we think about others. So when we talk about it, Let's not be negative. Let's just say it's, that's not the best way we should be. And we have to ask, why do people even need welfare? There's enough money in this country, and there's enough money owed us. And there's enough space for creating jobs for people that can work, right? So people can't work for creating right. jobs for people <laughs> so they wouldn't have to get these checks. But if they right, hold that thought right there, Dr. Karenga, because we're just about... Right. Great, great and I point you made. Last, I want to read the last statement from the mission statement, too. Okay? Real quick, because we've got please. 60 seconds. I got six. I can do it in 60 seconds. Right now? So we said, sure. We said we, we stand in Washington, conscious that it is a pivotal point from which we speak to this country and the world. And we come bringing the most central views and values of our faith community, our deepest commitment to our social justice tradition and the struggle it requires the most instructive lessons of our history and a profoundly uh, urgent sense of need for positive and productive action in standing up and assuming responsibility in a new, renewed, and expanded sense. We honor our ancestors, enrich our lives, and give promise to our descendants. Thank you, sir. Real quickly, how can folks uh, get in touch with you? How can they hear? Because I know you have uh, programs out in L.A. How can they get involved with that? Yes, you can call 323-299-6124, what did I say, 299-6124, and you can also go to our website, us-organization.org, us-organization.org, okay? 
and also to uh, African American Culture Center, LA African American, LA right. African American Culture Center. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, Doctor Karenga. We're running late. Thank you for sharing all this information with us on this anniversary Thank of the you, Million God. Man March. Always good to come. Keep doing the good work you're doing. All right, folks, we're out of here. Stay strong, stay positive. Please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.